Hello, people. Welcome to episode forty-two of Misfits. This is where I speak to rebels, the outliers, unconventionals. I try to see things how they see it and to learn from them. So some of these individuals include Betty Lee. At the age of sixty, did a first solo travel around the world for an entire year. We have Taking Soon, who's the architect behind People's Park Complex, the first multi-story residential and shopping. Building more in Singapore, Derek Silvers, and a whole lot more. So this episode we have Nina Barber. As she is a 27-year-old executive and CEO coach and matchmaker. Well, what a handful! In two years, from the age of 25 to 27, she is billing in the range of 2,500 to 10 thousand dollars a month per client in the coaching practice so nina is also the founder of prismatico a matchmaking service for startup executives to find coaches on top of that she has also co-founded a social enterprise nika water that brings clean water to more than forty thousand people every day in ethiopia in this conversation, we spoke about why Nina spends 50000 a year on self-development, the emotional journey of starting, operating, to closing a $3 million startup, how Nina built her coaching practice in record speed. And without further ado, this is the conversation. Well, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, and as I do some learning about what you do, uh, a couple of things that struck out to me, and it's not a couple of things, but the things, but the team that struck out to me, which I'm curious to ask, you know, is that when you go to sort of a social event and you got asked a question of, you know, what do you do? Well, how do you answer that question these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's funny because that's actually... That's a question that has fueled a lot of my own exploration over the years. I realized that I really struggled with that um, over time. So I've had a lot of different titles. I've had, you know, business co-founder, spokesperson, um, entrepreneur, COO. I've had these various titles throughout my life. And when I kind of was taking stock of what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. I think part of the discomfort was realizing that there wasn't a title. And I actually had to do a lot of work around how do I introduce myself? Because I felt a lot of embarrassment around, well, I want to spend my days doing these activities, but there's no job title for that. And there's nothing, no fancy or cool way of saying that, or there's nothing that sounds interesting to the outside world about that. And how do I literally introduce myself at a cocktail party? That was a huge question that came up to me, you know, and I really had to grapple with that. I really had to grapple with not having something really cool or interesting to say um, and, and deal with that. And what I ultimately realized through a lot of work, and I'm sure we'll go into all of this, was that that was just kind of part of my ego. But And when I let it go, I'm sure that it does actually sound pretty interesting when I tell people what I do. But what I currently tell people I do is I help solve problems and I help bring people together to solve their own problems. And that spans a bunch of different projects and a bunch of different initiatives and products. Um, But that's kind of my basic way of of bringing light to my work. And I do that through coaching. I do that through running an executive coach matchmaking service. Um, I do it through exploring other ways to bring people together where they currently aren't able to find each other seamlessly. Um, and I do it through just a lot of learning and being kind of a student of life. Wonderful. It's a long answer, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's 
And the short answer is uh, I invented my own dream job. So it has no job title or description. So whatever, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and I think also just looking at the arc of the amount of projects you've done and you sort of briefly touched about it earlier. Um, uh, do you, you know, do you always know that you're going to be an entrepreneur, you know, since when you're young? Uh, and also how's it sort of like living with a family of entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, so I grew up with a family of entrepreneurs. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, and I grew up in a huge, loud Moroccan family. Just every week, there was just dozens of people in the house. The, the, the most people that ever, the smallest number of people that ever lived in my house when I was there was seven growing up. So we always had a lot of people living with us. We always had a lot of people staying with us. Um, and I thought I wanted to be in politics, actually. That was my whole life. If you asked me what I wanted to do, I said, I want to be the president. I want to be in politics. And then as I got a little older, I said, you know, maybe I don't want to be the president. Maybe that's a little, a little terrifying. And so maybe around teenage years, I thought, oh, maybe I'll become like a journalist, like an investigative reporter, or maybe I'll become um, a, a international diplomat. And I started to kind of explore these things. So when I actually went to college, that's what I thought I was going to study. And I decided to take a slightly different approach in college, where my first year, I decided instead of committing to a a path, I was just going to take the most interesting classes I could. For Stanford, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I arrived at Stanford, luckily, I had a lot of choice of most interesting classes because they have so many interesting classes. And there you can actually take classes as an undergraduate in any of the graduate schools. So I actually found myself freshman year, first quarter in basically only graduate classes. I didn't realize I just gravitated towards exciting things. And so in each of those schools, I ended up having peers who were in lots of different um, advanced degrees. So I had people that were studying international relations, getting their PhD, right? I had people that were journalists already that were coming back to Stanford um, and taking this journalism class with me. Um, and so in all of these things, I slowly started to realize that the world of politics and international relations was actually quite corrupt, <laughs> which sounds silly that I didn't notice that before, but I think I, I'm very idealistic. Um, and then I found myself in just one class. It was entrepreneurial. And I don't know, the professor just kept asking questions. And I kept looking around being like, how come nobody else knows this? Like, obviously, this is the answer. Obviously, this is the answer. Obviously, this is the answer. And I just realized that from all those years of being raised in a family of entrepreneurs and a really participative family of entrepreneurs. It was like, you know, we're all going out to demo this new product that my dad just launched and we're learning how to pitch it and we're learning how to do it. Um, I realized that I had just picked up so much that it was so a lot of it was very intuitive um, and a lot of it was very easy. So I, I wouldn't say that I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. It was more like I kind of realized, wow, I actually already am, am ahead of the game in this. And now I can take that and leverage it and enjoy creating. Yeah. And you sort of given a lot of teases over there of like the multitude of projects that you have worked on. So we're just going to, maybe I'll just bring out a couple that seems interesting and then we'll have you share a little bit of like, what's it about? And we'll have some lessons that you have learned through each one of them. I think when you were over at 14, right, you visited Kenya, Ethiopia, and then so that sort of got started with this Nika water thing. And it, it seems from the outside, it's just that, oh, I visited Kenya 
and boom, Nikhil Water is here. <laughs> what, like, right? So like, what is the, the in-between journey of it? And, you know, uh, and I also saw that you were sort of the spokesperson uh, of the involvement of, of, with Nika. Um, so maybe you could touch a little bit about the play-by-play of how you bring it to life and how you got, um, how, how was your involvement in this? So um, we found ourselves in Kenya through an organization called Free the Children. Um, and do you guys have YPO in Singapore? What is that abbreviation for? Young, Young Presidents Organization. I think I heard of it, but I'm not sure if it's in Singapore. So it's pretty big in the U.S. and it's for um, it's basically successful business people over 40. And I want to say it's like between 40 and 50, you get invited to be part of YPO. um, And your business has to be making a certain amount each year and all these things. And they match you with a forum group and they bring in speakers. And it's a really nice community. And my dad actually was part of that when I was growing up. And he, they had a speaker come in who was just super inspiring to him, who ran all of these programs around the world. And they were taking a really interesting, holistic approach to solving poverty. And the organization was called Free the Children. Now today, they're called We Charities and Me to We. And they, so I heard him speak through this. I got so fired up. I was like, I am getting on a plane to China and not to China. I'm sorry to, um, well, yeah, they had programs in China. They had programs in South America. They had programs in Africa. They had programs everywhere. I was like, I'm going, I'm just going. And my family, I was probably 13 and I was just really jazzed. Right. And, um, and my family in, I like to say in true Jewish mother fashion, my mother was like, well, if you're going, we're all going like, you know, there's no way I'm letting you go on a plane. So we all rolled out and we did a program. And while we were there, we had this experience of doing a water walk. And so what, and I share this because this is what influenced the business model and how we ended up developing it, which is this understanding that on average, and I'm sorry, my stats are are rusty, but there's some huge percentage of the world that has to walk an average of seven miles a day to get clean water. So you think about like you wake up in the morning and often one of the first things that we all do is we take some some water, right? And or we walk to the sink and we use water, we go brush our teeth, we take a shower. Water is so integral to our developed world's perspective and day to day that we take it for granted. But for so many people, literally their entire day revolves around water. And what this organization found is to stop systemic poverty, water was the key. Because what happens is a family has a young girl and they need water, right? They need water to, to feed their family. They need water to do the dishes, to survive, to feed the animals, all these things. And because of that, they send their young girls on these water walks to go get gallons and gallons of water. And because it can be so far to the nearest water source, which by the way, is often polluted, often carrying lots of issues. What happens is the girls don't go to school and because they don't go to school, then they get married and have children younger. And then the cycle of poverty continues and there's no opportunity to break out of it. So water was just really symbolic in that sense and really integral. And so when we came home, we basically, my dad's call to my siblings and I, and to my cousins who had been on the trip as well was, look, we'll support anything you do. We'll help you figure it out. You have open access to our contacts, to our, you know, network, but do something. We're not just going to, you know, make a donation because we were really unsettled and we were like, what do we do? Like, how do we, you know, it was very hard to integrate back. Like we don't want Christmas gifts this year. Well, what do we do with that money? Where do we put it? Like, you know, going and trying to be friends with our normal friends again was really hard. It was like, 
Well, no, 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 no. Don't throw that water out. Like, you know, so we were really, really unable to integrate it. And there was this feeling of like, we have to do something right. And I think that that's very normal for a lot of people that go on experiences like this, where they're so exposed to something so different than their reality. And so we sat down and water was really critical. So we said, well, maybe it should be something with water. That's something that really stuck out to us. And what could it be? And at that time, my dad had read a book called uh, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. And it talked about how social entrepreneurship could be the ticket where you have sustainable businesses. So not a nonprofit approach, a sustainable business approach to this. And so we said, well, water is, is the core of this. We want the profits to go towards water and we also want to have it be around water. So we picked water, which in retrospect was probably not the right thing to pick because there's a lot of water bottles out there and a lot of people, um, I think it's part of the reason why uh, the company doesn't exist today, but over its lifetime, we created the most eco-friendly water bottle on the planet. Um, we were able to bring clean water to over 50,000 people um, that to date, it's for the rest of their life. So to date, those programs, those projects still exist. Um, the bottles are not in circulation anymore. So they were in circulation for about six years and in places like Whole Foods, Jimbo's, like all your local natural food places. Um, and we learned a ton. So, so that was kind of our experience and how we got it, you know, got it from nothing to fully going was a lot of, uh, manual things. So a lot of learning, a lot of Googling, a lot of farmer's markets. That was like the main thing. It would be like every weekend at a farmer's market, um, just sort of selling and getting to know until we had enough momentum to get it into some of the bigger distributors. Um, does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it definitely certainly does. I think two things that pop up, which is, you know, how do you go about making the most eco-friendly water bottle? How does it look like manufacturing-wise and design-wise? And then the second question that pop up is, you know, how do you do that lip to Whole Foods, right? And then I guess the last question is like, well, you know, like, like you know, it's being taken out. And so, um, you know, where is the impetus to, you know, it's kind of hard to strike the balance. Let's go back and do something different or, you know, because time is limited too. Totally. Yeah. So I think the important thing to know is that Nika was a super, super duper team effort. So we had from the kind of group that went and was exposed, there was a bunch of us that were all sort of like, we're building this together. We were the co-founders of it and we were all young and we had my dad and then from my dad, he had some of his friends who were kind of hitting that stage of life where they had had success in business, but they were sort of looking for more meaningful projects to invest in. Um, and so they chose to invest in this project. So some of it for sure was the luck and the awareness, you know, of that network being there um, and, and being able to draw on my dad's expertise and um, the general manager we brought on day to day was amazing. He did such a great job. And so there was so much hustle going on from so many people who believed in this, which is, I think, part of how it was able to move mountains. Um, but, you know, at 13, I wasn't sitting there making really strong business decisions, I wouldn't say. So in terms of like kind of moving forward and, and looking forward, I think a lot of us realized, you know what, the point of this, it served its purpose. Its purpose wasn't to be a bit company, maybe that would have been great. And that would have been amazing. But its purpose was to, to 
deliver something more than we could have ever delivered just by pooling our Christmas money and donating it to this organization. And it really taught us all so much, everyone different things, but everyone such valuable assets. So I think that's part of the reason why we never went back and said, all right, let's bring it back to life. Let's like reinvigorate it. Um, my mom dreams of that. So I'm not saying it's off the table. <laughs> uh, but we, um, so in terms of actually making the jump, so the eco-friendly bottle, a lot of this was, um, as my dad says, you know, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards, but much harder to do it looking forward. So at the time, we didn't say, oh, we're going to set out and be the most eco-friendly water bottle. We actually just made a water bottle and we made it really beautiful. And and we went out there and we started trying to sell it. And we said, you know, everything that we make after our costs are covered goes straight to these projects. And we thought it's a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you buy this water bottle? And what we found is nobody wanted to buy the water bottle. Um, very people wanted to buy it. And we were really confused at these farmers markets. And we started to hear things like, well, you know, I don't believe in plastic. I don't want BPA. I don't, you know, believe in land. You know, I don't want plastic to go into the land. And we would say, oh, but you can recycle it. And they'd be like, no, I'm like not. I'm, I'm a reusable water person. And what we found is a lot of the people that cared about our cause were also people that cared about the environment naturally. And so they were caring people. And so they didn't want to buy a plastic water bottle. So then we had to step up the game. So then we said, what would it really look like if we made people feel so good about their decision? And so what we ultimately ended up doing is the bottle itself was BPA free and made from recycled plastic. So it was already a recycled bottle, like fully recycled. And on top of that, any time that we sold, well, a few things. We offset our carbon footprint entirely as a company through different projects around the world. So we were a carbon neutral company. We had no carbon footprint. And then we also found that there were certain states in the United States that actually had horrific recycling rates. It just like they couldn't afford to recycle and they had really terrible rates. And so what we did is we created basically a recycling program partnership with different schools in some of these states. So any single bottle sold of Nika, we would then buy back two bottles from one of these places and recycle them. So we would pay to have other bottles recycled. So when you were buying it, not only were you buying something that was made fully of recycled plastic, was carbon neutral, but also by buying this one, two more were being recycled in addition to you already probably recycling yours. So it was taking bottles out of landfill and in putting them into recycling. So um, that's how we kind of approached it. And um, I think we were really proud of how it ended up being, but it definitely came from other people saying, this is what we want and us making it that way. And then the Whole Foods Leap, I'm trying to think how it exactly came into being. I know that we started at these farmer's markets and we put in just a ton of hours there. And then from the farmer's markets, we eventually had enough data of like, this is how much we sell. This is what people want. Here's kind of our presentation. And then we took that to the local cafes and stores and like little kind of boutique places and, you know, spas, just local places that carry water. And we would say, you know, here's our spiel, we're family run, we're, we're right here, this is our eco-friendly deal. And then a lot of them would start letting us in. And then as we built up more and more like that, and we had more momentum and we had more mass orders, which could drive the price down, then we were eventually able to kind of through the various connections that had been built those relationships, reach out to Whole Foods and get that relationship going. Oh my God, that's such a cool story. Um, 
What what have you learned about social entrepreneurship? You know, through that endeavor, um, how has your thought on social entrepreneurship changed uh, from when you started, and you know, uh, how is it like now? That's a great question, um, and it's definitely still one where my thoughts are evolving. Um, but I would say that they've definitely evolved. Um, I think that inherently so many more businesses than I originally thought are social businesses. So I think that a lot of companies, their missions, um, if achieved, would actually make the world a lot better. Um, so I kind of ask myself, so within my own coaching practice now, I have a tenant where I only work with companies that are technically socially driven, which means in my mind that, again, if their mission gets achieved, does the world look better? Does the world feel better? Is is the world tangibly better because they are doing this? And I think for some companies, the answer is, you know, the world's better because there's a lot more net worth and there's a lot more people employed. And the bigger they get, the more people that have jobs. I think that's great. You know, I think having a job is one of the best things that you can give someone, especially if it's a job where they're high, high integrity or high purpose or high satisfaction for the person. Um, I think that there's also the added layer of, and in addition to that, does the world look better, right? So for example, I work with an education company and in my mind, if they achieve their mission, so many more kids are going to love learning. So many more kids are going to be filled with joy and be lifelong learners. And so many more parents are going to feel comfortable and happy about where their kids are. And so many more teachers are going to feel proud and connected and respected for the work that they do, the hard work they do. So in my mind, that's a social enterprise, right? That makes the world better. And it's not because they're taking all their profits and giving it to money, right? They're giving away. Um, so I think how it's evolved is I view it less as this organization needs to take the money and give it away. And more does achieving their mission inherently help the world in a really meaningful, powerful way. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, for sure. And do you think that, um, on that note, do you think that some business, uh, when do you think is a good time to start a social entrepreneurship business, right? And I, I, I think that the term is also very loosely defined. And, you know, mm-hmm. prof, I mean, definitely is profit making. So it look, make the world look better, but like, Who's to say what is better and what is not better? So that's a very Absolutely. murky thing right there. Sure. Um, yeah, I think maybe that's a very ill-defined question. I, I'm going to get bad answers. So. So <laughs> but me, do you, do you want to, yeah, pass it? So it sounds like the question is, you know, who should start a social enterprise or when do you know if you should start a social enterprise? Uh, is that right? So, So I would say... I think the first question is, should you be starting a business, period, right? And I think that that's a very important question that we'll get to in our Namba discussion, I'm sure. But I think the answer for a lot of people is, no, you probably shouldn't be starting a startup. Should you be starting a small business? Maybe, totally. But there are also some people where that's not going to be their happiest, right? That's not going to be the place where they thrive as well. Um, So I think first is just figuring out who are you and what do you want? And if the answer is you're someone who really is going to do great building something, or you're someone who no matter how ungreat you're going to do, you just have to do it because this thing is calling you and pulling you and you just must, you can't eat, sleep or breathe to do it. Then I think that we can all, I mean, in my mind, uh, when we were in college, I was the co-founder of a group called Sense of the Social Entrepreneurial Students Association. And we 
we're trying to basically embed into the entrepreneurial fabric of Stanford's entrepreneurial spirit, the idea that everything can be social entrepreneurship. Um, and the team that I worked with were just all amazing guys that are still doing that. And, and I really believe in that philosophy of anything that you create can have the fabric of social entrepreneurship within it rather than it being the separate domain that only some people do. And you have to kind of decide you prefer profits or do you not? I think the future vision of the world that's really exciting is anyone that starts a business asks themselves, how can I do this in a way that's high responsibility? And yes, some of those things are going to be subjective. Some of them are going to be, you know, I might disagree that the best way to make the world better is you know, this thing, and you might think that it is this thing, that's okay if we disagree. I'm not saying that we have to agree on it. But do you really feel like the thing that you're doing is improving? And that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't make a ton of money. In fact, I think it's better, right? If the, the more valuable an opportunity, often the more money it makes, right? And so in some cases, you're going to be able to align that perfectly. Um, so one example that comes to mind, one of my really good friends, uh, works for a, for the Rise Fund, which is the biggest social entrepreneurial investment fund. Um, and just looking at the different projects that they've invested in, and some of them you wouldn't even think of necessarily as a social enterprise, but one that's super exciting, for example, is a company in Africa that is a tra eco-friendly travel company. And they do ecotourism and they do these super luxurious, amazing safari retreats. And they train local staff and they have this incredible experience. And you or I might pay, you know, let's say tens of thousands of dollars to go on a trip. And we might think, wow, we're paying so much money. This is an expensive business. And it is. And they're making good money. And at the same time, they're doing amazing conservation. They're employing people locally and the animals are now not being poached. They're being observed, being enjoyed, right? So to me, that's such a great example of a social enterprise where it's a beautiful business. It's an amazing business. And it also inherently is adding a lot of value to the world. Does that make sense? No, for sure. It does make sense. I, and I think one of the, the thing that, that I, I wanted to do, I don't know if you have some idea on this, but because um, business is value extraction, right? If you can actually get money out of it, right? It doesn't mean that if you don't, you, you can make a lot of value for the world, but you might not make profits because if you don't extract it, then it doesn't translate to profit. So I would also imagine that uh, a good business are uh, uh, taxing very lean on the salary of the CEO or, you know, like, you know, the investor, like taking um, money out of the, the picture. So I, I wonder if a social entrepreneurship aligned with the sort of the investor model because investors are trying to 10x, you know, their returns versus, um, you know, a, we want to give it back more to the conservation project, say, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it's a really, it, there is a tension and I think it's a healthy tension. I don't know. I think that right now, a lot of this space is in an exploratory phase where investment into these types of companies, is still being explored, right? Like what does the return look like for these companies? I know a lot of the companies that do seek out investors make sure that their investors are aligned with their philosophies, right? So an investor might say, I still want amazing returns off this company, but also I understand where the CEO stands and I understand their perspective and I understand that. So I think investor alignment is super important. I also think that a lot of these types of things could be well suited to, um, to being 
a little more applicable to that kind of medium to small size business that can bootstrap their way there instead of being, you know, like the multi-billion dollar startup. I think that there's a lot of small businesses that are started around the world all the time. And I, and I think that if they can be done responsibly as well, a lot more people can be empowered to kind of create them in ways that feel good. And I think that it's important, you know, no matter what, when you take out, when you add in factors and talk about returns, what you're really talking about is making sure that people are getting properly and adequately compensated for the investments that they're putting in, right? And humans are much more complex than just putting in time or just putting in money, right? And so for investors, for CEOs, for executives of companies, they also are people that care about things, right? So if everything's properly aligned, you have a CEO who cares about making money and about making a certain amount of money to be able to continue in this job. You have investors that care about making a certain amount of money off of their return. But you also probably have an investor who cares about the fact that he or she is excited to be investing in something that that feels contributive. And you also have a CEO who feels excited to be spending their working day, you know, working on a project that they're really excited about. And all those things kind of go into the equation of what's needed. Does that make sense? It's a big, it's a big can of worms. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's, a, it's a topic for another day. <laughs> but it's definitely an interesting one. And I think, um, I think the, 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 I think I still agree on the advice. If you could bootstrap your way, don't um, get uh, investors' money. And I think most companies actually, even big companies, can bootstrap their way over to big companies. You just need to do it slowly, right? The the extra investor money is just sort of the speed that you gain, you know, and traction. But then you also might fall, like, hard, too. Yes, totally. <laughs> so let's, let's move on to uh, Stanford a little bit. Um, you're working on redesigning Stanford, the school, right, for yeah. 2020. And we are 2020. Guess what? Yeah, we are in 2020. Uh, we did not predict quarantine, uh, remote learning. <laughs> um, so what? What are you, like? What are you? What were you thinking about? What are the big questions you're thinking about? And what were the big ideas that were put on the table? What got implemented? What didn't? And what you still wish? Oh my god, that's so much question. Like, but just no, go I, riff. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's gonna be hard for me to remember the exact details, but it was so much. Fun. Um, I remember that project. I actually, I got involved in it because I read a book going into college called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 by Dr. Tina Selig. And she was a professor um, at Stanford. And I was just fangirling. I was like, I have to meet this woman. Oh my God, I'm going to school where she works. Like, ah, and I was freaking out. So I just kind of stalked her to all of her classes that she taught and tried to meet her. And I tried to enroll in her class and they cut all the freshmen. They were like, this is not a class for freshmen, which was me. They were like, I'm sorry, you can't be in this class. So I, but I stayed after and I said, please, like, put me somewhere, teach me. Like, I just want to know. I loved her book. I loved her insights. And so she said, you know what? Like, the president of Stanford just commissioned this project called Stanford 2020. And I bet they could use a freshman perspective. And so because of that stalking, <laughs> I ended up getting to be part of this project. And we worked for about two years and we basically applied design thinking principles. So really, which are basically getting really down and dirty with customer development and mixing that with a lot of creative thought, looking at analogous examples, things like this. 
And after two years of research, we came up with a set of recommendations around what we thought the future of Stanford could look like. Um, the project that I ended up working on was called In Loops and Out Loops. And the idea was, what if going to college wasn't just four years of your life and then you were expected to sort of just go on and live the rest of your life? But what if it was something that once you were admitted to a university, you could kind of come in and out of it throughout your whole life and it was a part of you and it was a, a, a place and an institution that kind of nurtured and fueled you throughout different phases. And yeah, so I loved that and I took it to heart and I actually ended up experimenting with it myself. So I created my own series of in loops and out loops. So I would go on for a quarter at Stanford and then I would do an out loop where I went and worked in the real world and I, I lived off campus and I lived in a totally different city and um, and then I would come back and, you know, do school for two quarters and then I would leave again and I would work. And I think it ultimately is what led to me starting. And actually, technically, I am still a student. So I have... Um, I am technically still on an outloop, uh, which is funny enough. So, you know, I always joke, I'm going to go back when, you know, I'm like in my seventies and I'm totally for sure retired and my kids are all grown and I just want to be back on a college campus. So, um, so I'm my own in loop outloop experience experiment for sure. Um, yeah. And we played with lots of other things. Um, but I think the ones that kind of stuck were, in loops, out loops, um, something around the building blocks, we had reimagined what it looked like to have kind of core education. So instead of, you know, you would go to your school and you would take these, you know, 10 basic classes you had to take for your to graduate, we played with what it would look like if you almost had sort of someone that was more like an expert mentor and they were running different boot camps across different things. And you could kind of take different like life skill boot camps rather than, you know, you have to take an English, a science, a math. It was much more kind of pointed, exciting skills that you could learn that would teach you how to cross think and cross apply. We explored what if like Stanford was just a network of um, communities all over the world, all over different different planets. Like we had a space station one and you could kind of transfer between them all seamlessly rather than just being on the kind of in the Palo Alto campus. Um, so people experimented with lots of different things, but really I think it was just very cool to have the exercise of what if we wanted to be the leader in education, what would we be exploring? What would we be looking at? Mm, that's very interesting. And, and can I just check on this in loop up loop thing? Do you just go pay for the semester every time you go back? How does the financial work? So, yeah, exactly. So every school um, has different policies, but Stanford, because of its very entrepreneurial student base, has a very cool policy where you can go on leaves of absence. So basically, you just submit some paperwork and you say... I'm still a student. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not dropping out. I'm not transferring, but I'm not going to be coming back <laughs> until further. <laughs> and you're just put on hold. Everything's put on hold. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm just going to interrupt no. you there, but uh, it just reminded me of this whole college thing, right? College is, is not so much an educa about education anymore because the landscape now is that you can learn everything online, right? Even with Stanford courses. Yes. And college is actually about branding, right? Are you a branded Stanford student? You get in. So all you need is really one semester at a college um, and then you yes. can go get a job. It doesn't even matter so much you it's finish so it. It's so true. Well, honestly, the, I, I've, I'm very passionate about this because I... So I done technically three years of schooling. So I did make it through, you know, three years worth of Stanford. And 
Uh, I did not choose to, you know, cram it all in and graduate early. Like I said, I chose to spend a bunch of time taking classes that were kind of irrelevant to a major and just really designing my own way around um, through what I thought was interesting and useful. But I, I like to joke whenever my dad brings up that I never finished, I like to joke, well, I just saved him a year's worth of tuition, you know, so it's, it's, um, but I think that one of the big things that I feel is I've set out a rule that I will go back and finish and get my degree as soon as it's holding me back. But the reality is I said that probably five years ago and there's just not a single instance in which it has at all held me back because like you're saying, I can learn more efficiently than I would have in a, you know, 12 week course, I can learn so much faster, so much more efficiently through so many online resources. Now self curating, I have the brand, so I don't need to kind of go back and show I've never been asked for my degree, right? Like, please show me the degree physically. Um, and I have the network already and I have the resources and tools there. So I, I really actually think that it's a much better path <laughs> for a lot of people um, and a much more cost effective path if they're if you're a self-starter, right? If you're not a self-starter and also if you are obviously going into a very technical field where you need the expertise like medicine, please go get your degree. Don't pretend to be right? Um, but, uh, but I definitely think that there's a lot more room to play than people think there is when it comes to their, their secondary education. Um, so let's move on to Nova Food. Um, you co-founded with uh, your friend Caroline uh, Beckham uh, when uh, you were both yeah. in uh, Super Juice, which is your dad's company. Um, yeah. And so why, what was the big idea with Nova? Um, how do you have yeah, I know it's part one, Nova. Yeah, that was part of our downfall. We really did not pick a very well-branded name, did we? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so, okay. So the story was. Let me put it also an interesting injection, which is: was it hard to bring it up to your dad, where you know you need to pull out and you need to pull out one of your, you know, his right hand, or I don't know what uh, is Caroline's involvement in uh, Super as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'll give you the the whole down and dirty story, the whole Namba journey. Um, so uh, during one of my out loops, I got a phone call from my dad. And when I was headed off to college, my dad was coming off of a, um, my dad likes to say that, I don't want to say the seven businesses he started, you know, two were home runs, three were kind of first basers and three were complete strikeouts. They were just failures. Um, and that's over kind of 40 years of being an entrepreneur. And he was just coming off of two strikeouts in a row. So he had, I was the oldest. I was just heading off to college. It was, it was tough, right? It was really tough. And he ended up joining on just to consult at first with this young guy who was making juice out of his house and selling it skateboard and they were delicious. They had a three day shelf life. And my dad is like the, not a health freak at all. He's the farthest thing from a health freak you can imagine. And he was loving these healthy juices. And so he thought maybe this guy's onto something. And so he basically joined on and ended up creating a product out of it, creating a business out of it, became one of the co-founders of this company and then became the CEO. And so this all happened literally as I went off to college and we had no idea that it was going to take off or what it was going to look like. And, um, and 
I would get these kind of occasional updates. Wow, you know, we we moved from the the attic of this making the juice. Now we're in a warehouse. Oh my gosh, like Whole Foods wants it, Costco wants it. Like I was hearing all these things because it was such a great product. It was taking off and juice was just starting to boom, right, as a market. And they were so yummy and so good. And my dad was a fantastic operator, is a fantastic operator. So he was able to really take advantage of the whole opportunity very quickly. And finally called me at the end of my freshman year when I was thinking about what my next outloop would be, what my first outloop would be and said, look, if you want to be in business, you need to come down here and you need to just be my shadow and you just need to learn because we're growing like crazy um, they were named uh, Forbes' third fastest growing company in the U.S. that year. And he just said, like, just come learn. So I just came down and was his personal assistant um, for three months. And Wait, that must be hard. <laughs> it, oh, like I say personal assistant. He wouldn't let me do anything. But he let me sit in on everything. Right? Oh, okay, 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 okay. He, he, still, he still won't let – he's still one of those people that won't – you know, doesn't have a real personal assistant. Won't let anyone schedule, do his em- emails, anything. Um, but he but he let me in to every discussion, right, every conversation. And I learned a ton. And then while I was there, I met Caroline. And Caroline – um, had a pretty similar journey to me. She had just started as an intern at Suja when they first started and she was in college. And then she quickly realized, why am I paying all this money to go to college when I could just go get a real world education right now and be full time at this company and see how a company is built from the ground up. So she left college and joined the Suja team as one of the first employees and quickly had worked her way up. So at this point, it's two years in. She has two years of experience. She was the VP of special projects there. And she was just a hustler. She's She is just a hustler. <laughs> She's amazing. And she... She's younger than me. Yeah. She's a year younger than me. And she's, she's just amazing. She's, she's a total hustler, super smart, super sharp. And when I got there, she was already thinking, my dad is and was a great mentor of hers. So she was very open with him about this, thinking about what her next move would be. And she had kind of started to get a little bored with the Suja stuff because it was starting to become a little bit more steady, a little more mainstream. And she kind of wanted back early chaos and Exactly. So, and she was ready to kind of jump and do her own thing. So she had this idea of based on all of her learnings about the different buyers that Suja worked with, the network that she had built of mentors and buyers and people in the industry. She thought, wow, I could probably skip a bunch of bases that other young people right now aren't really in a position to do, right? There's not other, I want to say she was 20 at the time. There's not other 20 year olds that have the contacts and network and connections that I do that also like are 20 and therefore know what 20 year olds want. Right. And so she started working on this product. She called it nom nom snacks. And she, they were basically like little to go smoothie packs with probiotics in them. And she just asked for my help. So I just was kind of helping her like brainstorming with her, having fun. For me, Caroline was a real gift because I had felt for a long time, like I was pretty isolated from other girls my age. I had kind of this story that it was really hard for me to find girlfriends that I had a lot in common with. And and so she was someone where it's like, we both had this sort of love for building things and creating, and we both love to learn. And uh, so we really connected and I went back to school and just kind of helped her. And then ultimately she asked me to come on as a 50, 50 partner. So we became co-founders and 
Um, I just kind of didn't think about it too much, to be honest with you. I just kind of was like, okay. And I was like, I know I want to start a business sometime. Like I know my dad loves and trusts her and I really connected with her. I know that she's smart and she's very complimentary to me in a lot of ways. And I know that eventually it'd be great if I could walk away from this experience, having made some money and having learned a bunch of skills and that'd be great. So that was literally as far as the thought process went, which is kind of funny in retrospect, because I'm such a planner, but that was pretty much it. It was just like, why not? Um, so that is the very beginning of my Namba journey. Uh, what what dive into around the journey itself? <laughs> I think well, I think two highlights might be interesting, which is um, what was how, what was the big idea there that you know got you funded? Um, um, even with the tail, I mean, I, I guess Caroline was in the tail fe- uh, fellowship, so she might get her funding there, right? Uh, I guess, but it, it amount up to what three million dollars, something like that. Yeah. So we, we raised, oh man, I don't want to quote the number cause I don't want to get it wrong, but we raised, you know, quite a bit, uh, on. Yeah. And we had the Teal Fellowship grant and we had a few other things. Um, and we ultimately had raised our seed round and we raised our series A. Um, and then it was, we shut down just before our series B. So we were heading into raising our series B and then shut down. Um, and we so the the value proposition for the company was millennials snack more than ever and we need to provide clean healthy fresh snacks so they don't they're not shopping on the perimeters of the store anymore they're not you're not going in and buying a bag of chips for a snack when you're kind of a young fit woman you're going to the juice case you're going to the grab and go case and so we wanted to provide something that was heartier than the juice. It was more sugar friendly. So it wasn't something that had the fiber removed. Um, we to provide something that was really gut healthy. So the prebiotic fiber of fruits and vegetables was still in there. So unlike a juice where you juice it, we actually, it was smoothie. So we put everything in the skin, the seeds, everything was blended in there. And then we put in probiotics. So they were vegan probiotics. So the whole product was just meant for that really like ambitious go-getter girl that's like running from thing to thing and wants to grab a smoothie pack. Um, we made a bunch of decisions along the way that I think looking back, we can say were part of the reasons why it didn't ultimately work. Um, and I'm not going to go into any of those, but um, wherever you want to take decision. Give a few highlights, I think. I think, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so do you think that if you would make those decisions differently, the company might still be what it is today or like maybe grow to like a big size, whatever food kind of thing? You think so? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's actually similar products now that, you know, didn't exist or that did exist when we were around that are doing well. So I think that yes, given a few tweaks, it could have been more successful. But I think that the like, the foundational pieces that made it not work um, are a few things. One is that we were scared to do customer development is the truth. And I can say it a lot of different ways, but the reality is if we were being really, really honest with ourselves, we were really proud of what we were building and we really wanted it to be successful and we didn't really want people to shoot it down. And so we didn't spend a ton of time getting out there and saying, try this. All right. Now do you want to buy 10? You don't? Okay. Why not? Like, what would you rather buy? Like one, try this version. We didn't spend and hours in the kitchen. We just got them to the point where the buyer, who is the person that was making the purchasing decisions for the um, stores, would say, oh, yeah, that tastes good. And 
we were really good salespeople and we were really good branding people. And so we created this kind of like beautiful package and we had lots of great research and we had them tasting good enough that people would taste them and be like, oh, that's nice. You know, most people would be like, that's good. Um, but we never really doubled down and said, this has to be a product that people love, that they're obsessed with, that they can't wait to go to the store tomorrow and buy the next one or that. And I think that it was in that middle ground that we kind of died, right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't something that said, oh, this is terrible. It was something that people would buy occasionally. And so we would get all the skewed data because we would have someone would buy one and then they'd buy another one, but you know, a week later, right? Or two weeks later. And then they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm out. This one sounds good. But it was never like, oh my gosh, like I, I have to have my Every single day. Exactly. And I think that's how food companies win when they become staples. Um, and, and we could have done that. I think it had, we put more of a premium on customer development because towards the end we started doing that and we learned so much and we created some amazing flavors, but with the way that the companies turn and a cold chain company like that, it was just kind of too late. Um, didn't work from a financial standpoint for us, but I think that there were a lot of things. And we also were very innovative in a way where we tried a lot of things all at once. So we put, we're putting in probiotics at a time when people didn't really know what probiotics were. We were putting it in a pouch. So like a smoothie pouch, which up until that point, we were the first pouch on the market for adults. Everything else had been for kids. So that was a huge education piece. Um, and, and, and then it was high pressure processed, which retains many more of the nutrients than if you pasteurize it, but it also means it has to be refrigerated. And most people were used to pouches being able to not be refrigerated because the baby food, not, not there, those are pasteurized. So it was, Hey, this has to be refrigerated. It has probiotics and it's in a pouch, but it's for adults, which were three all totally new things than just, Oh, we're selling a smoothie to go. Right. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the leap, the leap is a bit too, too, too high for a you know a consumer, and the behavior is <laughs> not like it's not focused on the consumer, right? It's like what is my lifestyle like, you know? Exactly. Exactly. We were really focused on what we thought the buyers wanted. So a lot of the buyers would say things like probiotics are hot, probiotics are the next thing. And we'd be like, yeah, totally, they're hot. Throw in probiotics, and then the buyers that we were working with would say like, you know you know, we don't like the way it feels coming out of a bottle to have a smoothie consistency coming out of a bottle. You kind of need a straw. And we were like, cool, well, you know, we can't really do like a Capri Sun pack. So what's the next best thing? And be like, oh, a pouch. Okay, we could do a pouch. We could do a pouch. But we didn't take the time to understand like, okay, well, how will this person react to a pouch? We were just like, oh, some people won't like it, but most people will be fine. They'll learn to like it, right? So I think we did a lot of things because they were convenient for us or they were convenient for the buyers, but not for our actual end consumer. You have sort of given me the sort of top overview of like, technically, like why the company uh, failed, right? Didn't Mm -hmm. became what it it could have been. Um, What was the emotional journey um, to the day of shutdown? I think that's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what would like yeah. to take away from there? Ooh, big journey. I can feel part. Of it. And I would would say, firstly, thank you for being so candid, and you know, um, oh. with the interview. And I think I'm learning so much. And I I sometimes go to some of the interviews where I'm asked I ask questions where you know they were answering the questions they want to be answering instead of the questions that I'm asking. So I don't get as much yeah. out of it. But you know, with you. Yeah, you give me the full Monty. I'm so glad. 
I'm so glad. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a really valuable perspective to share because I think that there's a lot of, um, especially now working as an executive coach, what I know is true is there's a lot of emotional journey going on behind the scene for founders. And there's not a lot of people they feel comfortable processing it with. And there's not a lot of role models they can look to and say, well, this person failed and survived, or this person succeeded, but they had a hell of a time, right? And um, and so I think it's great for founders and entrepreneurs to talk about the highs and lows of their journeys and, and really understand what's normal for people. Um, but at the time, I did not feel that it, what I was going through was normal. I had a lot of feelings and I didn't know that a lot of people felt them and I felt very isolated. Um, and I think um, I'll give you kind of a quick snapshot that sort of lays the background for my feelings, which is about a year and a half into starting the company. For the first year and a half, I was just so happy. We were having fun. We were building. We were, we had initial momentum. We raised our seed round, you know, by the time we snapped our fingers at a really favorable valuation because the product was really, um, like I said, we, we, we were good salespeople and we built well to buyers and we really benefited from the network that my dad opened up for us and that Caroline already had built from her work with him. And so what happened was pretty quickly, we had a bunch of buyers that said, when you're ready, when this product is here, we'll take it in, right? Buyers at local chains and some big ones as well. And we were really, really fortunate. And so we were able to take that and raise a pretty high valued seed round. And and then we just started going. And all of a sudden, I had gone from I was a junior in college to, all right, I'm making a salary and I have um, this vision and I can see a path to making my initial millions and I can um, see a path to learning and building my entrepreneurial resume. And I'm working with this person who I love and who's my first real girlfriend you know, my age that I haven't, you know, been related to that I feel really connected with in that kind of way. And I have, I get to work with my dad, who's just this amazing mentor in my life. And, you know, he's an advisor to us and, you know, all the people I love. And so there's all this excitement. And then there's all this learning of like, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. And everything became so fun because I could apply it right away. It was like, okay, I need to figure out how to hire. Okay. Learn, read the top 10 books on hiring. All right, now I can hire. And how do I do it? And, and the, so many of my learning parts were so activated. So it was really fun. And then we learned that the best place to manufacture our product would be in LA, in Long Beach. And I was up in the Bay at this time, and I decided to move to LA, and Caroline and I decided to plant ourselves in LA. So I'm from San Diego originally, which is about a two-hour drive from there, so that's kind of nice. But my boyfriend, who's now my husband, was still up at Stanford. All of my friends were still in school. They're all about to enter their senior year, and I leave and come down to LA, and I moved to LA basically by myself. I have a couple, uh, a cousin and a really good friend who basically come move in and live on my couch in my one bedroom apartment and work and help, help me at Namba. And Caroline's brother does the same on her couch, moves into her couch and helps us at Namba and become kind of our, our scrawny founding team. All of us just sort of doing everything, you know, like we have hilarious pictures and it's fun. You know, we're, we're a team, we're building, but it was lonely and 
it was different. And, you know, a lot of those first adulting moves in general can be a little hard because you're just like, wow, I'm living on my own now. And like, how do I take care of myself? How do I like balance work and sleep and laundry and healthy eating and find time for myself and all these things? And my boyfriend was far away. My family were kind of far away. And it just, it all felt a little, a lot, right? It was a lot going on. Um, and, but it was exciting. And then our team started to build and we started to pull together just the most amazing group of people. And still to this day, I think that the whole reason the company existed was just so that these people could all find each other because they're just incredible and work such important part of each other's lives still. Um, and I started to find that I really loved certain activities. Like I loved building the team. I loved bringing the team close together. I loved building structure within the company. I loved learning and figuring out how to apply those learnings to our company strategy and kind of thinking through strategy. And then I learned that I really didn't like a lot of other activities <laughs> that I had to do. <laughs> and I was kind of trying to navigate, well, how do I kind of deal with this? And when you're starting a company, there's this sort of constant chaos in your mind, at least there was in mine, and I see this a lot in others, where it's just like you go to sleep thinking about everything in the company. So then you're up for hours laying in bed thinking about things. And then you wake up kind of in a cold sweat at 3 a.m. thinking about things. And then you kind of lay in bed for an hour trying to go back to sleep, but you can't stop thinking about it. So you finally just get up and you just start work, right? And then this whole process kind of plays out day after day. And then maybe you get a nap and maybe you don't, but pretty much you're sleepless, which exacerbates things, which means that you're making unhealthy food choices. You're not wanting to exercise. You're not wanting to go for walks. You're not wanting to call your friends that you haven't talked to in a few months. And then it just becomes further and further kind of isolating from even just a lifestyle perspective where you're just sort of not showing up as your best, right? So I'm going to uh, interrupt over there and ask, what were you, what were the thing that caused you to be thinking of at night? Yeah, good question. I, I don't remember the exact things, but I remember that there was always something, right? There was just, you know, for example, like, oh, we have this big meeting with this buyer coming up. Like, are we prepared? Oh, like, what if we're not? Like, how are these numbers going to look? Or, you know, there's just this kind of constant fear of, like, we don't really know what we're doing. And so what are we missing? Right. And I think that that feeling instantly the wanting to review, what are we missing? Or how could I have handled that situation better? Exactly. It's the planner, right? The planner that says, I don't trust my future self to figure this out. Or what if I miss something? Or what if I handled that wrong? Right. Um, and that's very common, right. And now that I know from the coaching perspective, um, and I tried lots of things during that time. I tried learning, you know, to meditate. I tried learning to write things down. And I mean, I viewed it as a constant kind of personal improvement project. Um, and nothing really helped that much. A lot of stuff distracted me. I discovered Tony Robbins and I would just, I would wake up and I would just listen to his tapes just on repeat when I was stressed in the morning. Right. And, and hours and hours, like I just walk around in a daze, like listening to them as I was working and, um, and you know, sleepless and exhausted. And, and I gained a lot of weight during that time because I was really eating like crazy. And so I gained about 20 pounds too, over the course of that year, which was a lot for me. And I just felt bad, you know, I just felt bad about that. And then at the same time, I felt really good about a lot of things. Like I felt great about the team we were building. I felt good that like we were building a company. I felt good about those things, but I just couldn't reconcile how I could feel so good about certain things and so bad about other things. Does that make does that resonate in any way. Yeah. Um, and, and so what I ultimately 
ended up feeling then then it started obviously a co-founder relationship is very very challenging it's First like being founders. oh my it, god it's yeah yes. exactly and i'm sure if i called caroline up and got her on the phone she would have all of her own um things to say about her version of it and her experience on her side and ultimately like i adore caroline like we have nothing but love and respect between us but i think that if we were to like look back and just take a random pulse of interviews of each other throughout the process, there would have been many moments where we would have had a lot to say about one another. Right. Um, and I think that's very normal. It's just like the same way, you know, you can love a spouse or a partner and sometimes you just get a pulse on them and you're just like, what am I doing with this person? Like, how, how am I married to them? And like, why, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Right. So there's a lot of those moments in a co-founder relationship too. And you have to have perspective. You have to have good communication. And I'm so grateful for that relationship because it was the first relationship in my life that taught me truly how to communicate. And it taught me that it was important to express your feelings and clear things and to have regular frequent communication structures to do those things and we learned and Caroline was super receptive and we always grew together and that was super important. Um, but I would say. But, but because the, the backlog of problems and the, the clearing of it, it's just not fast enough to catch up. Do you feel? Yes, exactly. And I think, and I, you know, my husband always jokes that my pain tolerance is really high. So it's like, Oh, but the, the joke is that it's not actually high. It's just, it's fake high. So, you know, for example, you might annoy me, annoy me, annoy me. This isn't true anymore, but you could have, in this example, Caroline would do things that would annoy me, annoy me, annoy me, or frustrate me or upset me. And I'd be like, you know what? No, that's petty. I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel bad about that. Or I shouldn't need this thing or whatever. And I would push it away, push it away, push it away. And I was thinking I was pushing it away, but I wasn't, it was just building up. And it was building up and it was building up until eventually she would do one thing that wasn't that bad and it would, right? And so what I learned was I needed to be able to express much more frequently, much more openly, much more directly what was going to work for me and what wasn't and what I needed and what I didn't. And she needed to do the same. And that built a really strong relationship. But until I realized that that was possible <laughs> and until I realized that that was going to be okay and safe and good, just completely in my own world, I was terrified of it and I was angry about it and I was scared. And like, I had all these feelings building up. Right. And again, I don't think that had anything to do with Caroline specifically. I think it was just, I had not yet learned that I could actually express anger. I hadn't owned that that was an emotion that I could own or that I could express frustration. That was just not my nature. And so I never really had anyone. I mean, I never went through that phase with my parents. I never really went through that phase with my siblings or my partner. Like we just didn't hit each other's buttons that way. And so that relationship taught me a lot, but until it was able to come up and like we built those structures and as I was learning still, even once it happened, then as I learned, okay, it's safe. Like she's okay with me being mad. She's okay with me being scared. Like I'm safe in that. Um, until I really got it, which took a long time, there was still always way more buildup than I wanted, which still resulted in more frustration and things like this. So she was one of my greatest teachers in that way. And I really appreciate that. about her. Um, and I would say that around yeah, like around a year and a half in that started happening. And then I would say around two years into the journey with that as the backdrop, I started to think more about like, what did I really want for my career? And I think I started to sober up to the idea that to the fact, I would say <laughs> to the fact that, um, 
this company wasn't going to be a two years and I'll walk away with $10 million to start the rest of my career kind of experience. Like I had somehow in my head calculated that it would be because things look very easy to calculate that way on a spreadsheet when you're first starting. Um, and I started to realize, wow, like if we're going to have an outcome like that, it's going to take probably 10 years. And, and, and maybe that'll be the outcome. Maybe it won't, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I could or couldn't be. And I think that that sober fact threw me into what I call my quarter life crisis. Um, and that was a really, really rough period for me because I started to think, wow, I'm happy that I'm making something that's healthy, but like I had come off of remember Nika where literally every bottle we sold pretty much saved a life, right. To some extent. And in some cases, very directly saved lives. So then I was kind of like, and now here I am selling a smoothie to a mom that drinks $200 worth of green juice every day and that like will survive if the smoothie doesn't exist. And I started to kind of question the value of the product. I started to question my role and like what value I was adding to the world by doing this. I started to question a lot of these things from the perspectives that I had at that time and started to really think that I was wasting my time. And that was a really hard thing for me because at that point, I built this team that I adored that were kind of following Caroline and I into the fire. People had left college to come work for us, right? So we had we had this amazing team. People had left jobs. People were having babies. People were putting down payments on houses. I mean, like people were just like, they were living their lives and we felt... I responsible for that. Um, and I had my dad on board. He had opened up his network of investors. His best friends had invested in the company and our seeded friends and found, you know, I had moved to LA. I'd missed my senior year of college for this. And, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing all the friends that I made in college, getting closer, taking their senior photos, right. Doing this whole experience together. And then I'm starting to question, like, was this the right move? Like, was this worthwhile? Was this right? And then I started to think, this is my neuroticism, but I'm giving you really the full picture. So anyone listening out there, no matter how hard you think it is, I promise, <laughs> this too shall pass. Um, but my full neuroticism started going into, well, if this takes 10 years and I want to have kids and I've always known I want to have like a big family, I want lots of kids. And I've also been, I grew up around kids, so I knew, know what's I would say I have a realistic perspective on what type of energy having kids requires and what type of attention. And so I had a very realistic perspective that while I could be working with lots of young kids running around, the likelihood that I would want to be working like a full-time job with normal hours that was not flexible was pretty low. And the likelihood that I would want to be like starting something totally brand new from scratch, floor up, that I wanted to give all my attention to was also pretty low. And so I was like, all right, well, then that means that by the time I hit a certain age, because, you know, your fertility starts to decline after 30 and like, you know, all these things. And I definitely not after 35. And if I want to have like 10 kids, you know, I got to separate them each by two years. And then you have to have the like, you know, and you start to get into the neuroticism of, of the female brain. And what I realized was how I didn't want to spend the next 10 years building this company. Like I really just did it. And it wasn't something that worked out in the calculation of how I wanted to spend my time. So I decided this in my head, but then I did not decide that I actually wanted to do any of the hard things that were required to leave the company. And so what that led to was about a year of me being in a state where parts of me really wanted to go, but parts of me 
were in a state of indecision around it and didn't want to do any of the hard things. And so I was just in constant pain. And I really believe from that experience that, um, they say that pain is inevitable, right? Sometimes you're going to have things that make you feel sad or happy or excited or scared or angry. Those can come and go. Pain can come and go, but suffering is when you are stuck in your pain. And I was really suffering because I was so stuck in, I want to go, but I'm not actually willing to do, to do the things that would help me go. And my poor husband and my brother were like my support system because I didn't feel like I could talk to Caroline about this. I didn't feel like I could talk to my team, not because they weren't open, but because I didn't want to create that level of doubt. I felt guilty. I felt ungrateful. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it because I didn't want them to feel like I was just squandering this opportunity. Um, so for about a year, I just vented every single night to my poor brother and my poor husband and just told them, I'm so unhappy. I'm so upset. And both of them at some point were like, Nina, just stop, like, get out. Don't like, why are you doing this? Why are you making yourself sick? Either figure it out or get out. You know, everybody will survive, you know, do it in a high integrity way. But it sounded so hard in that moment that I couldn't even conceive of doing it. Um, and actually what ended up happening was on the emotional journey, I finally, and again, I wouldn't trade this period for the world because I learned so much about myself. I tried so many different tools and methodologies that ultimately led me to being the person I am. But ultimately what happened is finally I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And I put together a whole exit plan and it was going into our series B. I said, you know what? I'm going to give the next six months going into the series B. I'm going to be super, super involved. I'm going to give my all to making this company successful. And I'm going to, um, tell Caroline that I would like to leave and I'm going to build into, yeah, I'm going to build into the series B that I'm not going to bring in any of those relationships. Caroline's going to bring them in. I'm going to help her, but from the outside, rather than being sort of the kind of co-founding pair, she's going to be the center of the show and I'll get to just support her. And then when we get that money in, I will hire and train and recruit a replacement for myself that will be even better for the company than I would be. And it went well. Caroline was super understanding, super caring, like super nice about it. We decided, we set this whole plan up and then the company couldn't raise our series B, which was somewhat of a weird fluke um, because we were actually doing pretty well and we were a pretty hot company in the market. And just due to basically our numbers and our timing, it, it didn't work out for, you know, tied to the reasons that we talked about earlier. Um, so I never ended up having to have those conversations with our investors. I did have the conversation with my dad. It was very hard. It was very painful, not because he was at all judgmental, but just because I felt really guilty. How does the really conversation look like with your dad? Uh, well, the, the reality, the, the raw true reality of how it looks like with my dad is me calling him and crying like I'm a, like a 10 year old girl. I'm sorry. Like, you know, um, and of course him being like, all right, calm down. Like, let's come, let's meet him. Let's talk in person. Like, it's going to be okay. Like whatever, it's fine. And, you know, they definitely did have more of the mindset of, look, you did this thing, you made these commitments, you should hang in there. And that was their mindset. And I totally respect and appreciate that. But also their mindset was, and that said, you know, we love you and we care about you and you need to do the thing that's right for you. Um, 
but you know, don't give up on something just because it's hard. Um, which was definitely more of their mindset. But at that point I was so beyond just thinking it was hard. It was, I was so confused about what I wanted and I was so certain that this was not it, that it was, it was less of a, I'm giving up because this is hard and more of a, I have taken what I need to know about this and it's no longer the place that I need to be. And I just knew that. And it was so gratifying because there was definitely a part of me that was scared. What if I'm falling into the grass is greener trap? What if I just think that this is, this is the challenge. The problem is that I'm here working a job I don't like at a company that I'm not that passionate about. And what if I leave here and I get the perfect job and I do the perfect thing and then I'm still unhappy. What if it's me that's unhappy? And it was really gratifying. It was a really scary. And especially with what I felt like I was putting on the line, what I was leaving behind. Um, and I, it was so gratifying to realize that, no, I was actually in this specific situation. Like immediately it was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And then immediately when my new sort of career started, it was just like, this is night and day compared to how I used to feel. Um, so I think that there were certain factors that I just had learned about myself that needed to be true here. Um, but, but I, I don't think, I do think it's an important question for everyone to ask if you're considering a big career shift, because, you know, the question is like, you're taking you, you are the common denominator. So are you going to be someone that's happy? And certainly if I had taken the mindsets that I had during that period with me, I would not be happy in my current role. Maybe things would be a little bit better, a little bit less complaining, but I had taken so many new mindsets with me and I use those very consciously to build in habits and routines and different key components into my roles that were super important. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of think about what you're bringing with you and what's really going to be different. Hmm. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. It is, uh, <laughs> just hearing it. I'm like having anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, Woo! Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Well, so, wow. I, I guess um, uh, to how how do you handle the ending of the company? Yeah, so I can't remember exactly what our steps were, but I realized. So my husband has been a fantastic mentor to me in my life. Um, he is a very very smart person, and he's very well read and and successful in his own right. And he is often like. 10 steps ahead of me when it comes to business learnings. And so I think he basically, I remember when we first decided to shut down the company and, and basically what ultimately led to the decision was we were trying to raise our round. The, the market at that time wasn't doing great and our numbers were coming back where our new products weren't really, we weren't, weren't being reflected yet in our numbers that were really important when we were raising in, in a CPG company. And it was basically like we were telling companies, take a bet on us. Take, we haven't done that great, but take a bet that this new round is going to be great. And it just was too big of a bet for the market at that time. And, and so we did have a couple options on the table from some investors who were very caring, who said, look, we will do this. But because we had raised our previous rounds at such high valuations, it would have basically wiped both Caroline and I out and our incentive equity pools out. And so we would have been signing on to keep the company going, but without really any incentive in it for us. And so the investor said, think, think deeply about it. You know, don't just take it. 
because we don't want you to do it if you guys don't want to do it. And I was for sure out. So at that point, Caroline knew that wasn't good. I, I was happy to support whatever decision she wanted, as long as she knew that I wasn't going to continue at that point either way. And so I think given that context, she felt like she also had an opportunity to kind of take some of those learnings and start over and start with a new clean cap table, new clean like team set up new learnings everything which she did and it's she's doing a terrific job with her new company as well um and so at that point we knew this was going to happen chris my husband sat down and basically wrote us a little bit of a a guide from his learnings on like here's what i've seen here are the people i've heard talked about and he reached into his network um and then we actually asked some of our investors as well who do you know who has shut down their company and who's done it well? And then we, I, I got on the phone and I interviewed a few founders who had shut down their companies and asked them, like, what do you wish you'd done? What do you think was really helpful? What wasn't? And from that, we kind of created this list of things that we needed to do and how we wanted to handle it. And, um, and really, our, our goal was just to handle it with as much grace as we could for everyone involved, right? For the team, for the investors, for the client. For the customers. Um, and I would say we, we did a pretty good job. Um, I think we could have done better, but I think we tried and we were really emotional and we didn't take the time to really process our emotions. Um, but ultimately the thing that I most cared about was making sure that our teammates were left in a good place. And so we spent a lot of time trying to help them figure out their next steps and kind of working on their goal setting. Um, so that was kind of what that process looked like for us. How, do you reconcile that piece um, with taking money from your friends and family and telling them this is going to fail? This is not happening. Oh, yeah, it sucked. It was it still sucks to think about. Right. In fact, actually, an interesting side note of the journey is I recently, like I, maybe um, two months ago when the quarantine first started, I sent an email to about five of our investors that were Namba investors who I hadn't talked to since the company shut down almost three, three to four years ago. And I, I'll tell you the content of the email was personalized to each of them, but it was essentially like, I'm so sorry. Like I haven't talked to you because the reality is I had all this embarrassment and fear and vulnerability swirling around. And I just didn't know how to show up and build our relationship off the backside of that. And all of them, responded and all of them had some variation of hear you, but like, you don't need to feel that way one bit because we were investing in you. You know, you were a friend, you were, you know, you were a friend of a friend, you were a family member, you were someone we cared about. You were something we were excited about. Of course we wanted the financial success, but that's not why we did it. We did it because we wanted to invest in you or we wanted to invest in Caroline. And, um, and I think that's important to remember because even now I think about it and it's like, of course, if I were to invest in someone in an amount that felt reasonable to me, I'm choosing that amount. I'm choosing what feels reasonable. And I would never make an investment that I didn't feel good about, even if I knew it was going to be lost. Right. So nobody was being duped in. Nobody was asking to put their life savings in. These are people who do invest or who really believed in what we were doing and really wanted to put it in. It wasn't like we were asking them, right? The hardest one was my amazing cousin put some of his savings in because he really, he, he works at Suja and he is incredible, such a smart guy. And he loved Caroline and me and he wanted to be part of it. And, um, that was the hardest one for me because he's not a formal institutional investor who is, you know, 
doing that. But for him, it was exciting because he is someone that now has lots of, you know, entrepreneurial experience. He's worked with lots of companies and it was part of it for him. So even then, I think it's keeping in mind, um, it's keeping in mind that they know what they're doing. Nobody was doing it because we asked to, to mortgage their house to put in. But then it's also just owning those, those vulnerabilities. It's also owning like, you know what, this sucks. I really wish. And for me, the thing that's me excited is knowing like when my cousin goes to start his company, I can invest in that now, you know, and I can be part of that for him. And knowing that any of these people, you know, when their kids are having challenges, I can be on the phone as a coach and, and help help them in that way and just kind of be there for them in ways. I'd like to move on to sort of the healing process. I mean, it seems like you're still healing after three years like now, right? Because you just sent out the email. Um, But I think, I don't know what, how should we tackle the healing process of, you know, reconciling that that, that piece, the shift in the story and, you know, what do you do in in the process of finding yourself, I guess, I don't know if that's appropriate word to use. So why don't I just start and then you can just jump in and cut me off and tell me like, oh, maybe dig into this or let's talk about this. Um, so I would say that looking back now and having seen so many other people at the, the same age as so like early 20s, I, I noticed that a lot of people go through very similar things to what I was going through, whether they started a company that failed or didn't, whether they joined a new job, whether they just left college, whether they go to college. I think at any point in time, someone hits a point where they have to really question, who am I? How do I want to be in the world? How do I want to be as an adult? How do I want to contribute? How do I want to make money? How do I want to live my life? Um, What do I care about? What do I not? What should my relationships look like? Where should I live? You start to kind of like process all these questions. And I think that it's convenient to say that I was thinking about these things because the company failed. But the reality is, I think these were things that a lot of people think about at that stage of life and that the company failing really pushed me into thinking about in a really timely way. Exactly. And in an emotional way, like it brought up maybe some extra emotions that wouldn't have been there, but um, that were layered on. But it was still like a relatively normal process, I think. Um, I think the best way, (coughs) excuse me, um, I think the best way to think about that time for me is I heard this quote from Tony Robbins a long time ago, which is if I rub your arm, it won't hurt, right? If you just kind of go like this over your arm. But if I rub your arm and you have gashes all across your arm, you're going to scream, right? Like it's going to be so painful if you have open gashes. And his analogy was that we are all walking around with these open gashes that like are very unique to us, but that we just don't even realize, right? So for example, I might have a gash around someone you know, calling me short. That's not a real one for me, but like I am short. So, you know, maybe I'm someone that I'm like really self-conscious about being short. So you might be like, oh, you're so short. You're so fun size. And it might be like a fun compliment or non-consequential thing to you in your mind. But you saying that to me might be a gash. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I'm short. He's right. I'm never going to amount to anything. Right. Like, you know, all have these things. And 
I think that when the company failed, what I realized was all of these gashes felt exposed for me because my whole life I had been this high achiever. I had had it together. I had had, you know, I was voted most likely to succeed and most likely to bring home to mom in high school. Right. So like, those were my two things. It was like, I was liked, I was, people liked me and people thought I was going to be successful. And those were two really important things to me. And now here I am being put in a situation where all these people who I really care about, I perceive that they don't like me because I've just lost them all this money or I've lost them their jobs or I've lost them, you know, success in some way even if that wasn't true, right? Even if they did like me still just fine, I perceived that they didn't. And here I am saying the things that I previously used to measure success, like financial earnings, financial outcomes, uh, creativity, and building things that are successful, these are now dead. Um, So I think that I just, it, it exposed two really big gashes of my ego. And it forced me to look at who I am and how I measure success and how I think about who I am and who I want to be. Um, and I was lucky for a bunch of reasons, probably the biggest one of which that I can't even quantify that makes me so excited about all the moms out there and like all the parents out there is just that I was raised by really like good parents who didn't value, you know, certain things. They, they valued goodness and kindness and doing your best. And that was it. Like, you know, they couldn't have cared less at the company failed. Like they truly couldn't have, despite the time and much invested, awesome. they just cared. Exactly. They just wanted me to be happy and they wanted to see me thriving and that's what made them feel good. And, and so I knew, even though I had strong convictions around what success meant financially and, um, success wise from the outside, I also knew that none of those were really the truth. Like it's like part of me knew that they weren't the truth because I had been raised to believe that like being kind, being good, way more important than like money. Two things that we can dive into, which is success and ego, which you've brought up. Yeah. And I think maybe you can dive into success first, which is what does success mean to you when you're 20 and now? Yeah, great question. All right. What did it mean to me when I was 20? I think when it was 20, it was like I was always focused on hitting the next milestone. So I was like very much like whatever the next thing is that I want, I need to be getting it right now. And that's like, and I need to be taking as much humanly possible action as I can towards getting it. And that's success. Um, But it's really not successful until I get it. So even if I have a 10 out of 10 day of like working as hard as I can on the business, I'm not successful until the business has you know, made me $10 million that's in my bank account that I can then say, and now I'm going to invest this in. Um, at the time that was my dream. It was like, I wanted to walk away with some number of millions of dollars from Namba to be able to then invest in without needing any investors, whatever other projects I wanted to do that I thought would be very, um, socially driven. And now what do I think is success? Now I think success is being, the most joyful person I know (laughs) and just, and helping others see that and, and nurturing them if they want that and then creating things I'm proud of, you know, just creating. Um, and sometimes that creation is very unproductive looking, you know, it's me just sitting there and, you know, having a really in-depth conversation, you know, with, with you, right. For two hours. And that might not be productive in some ways, but in other ways it's creative, right. It's very creative. Um, 
And sometimes it's very tactical. It's like, no, I need to do a hundred customer development calls and I need to like get them done. And that's creating, right. Creating, um, more ideas and connections for my next project. So, um, it's a lot more on the, if I were to die tomorrow, would I be so happy with how I spent the last week of my life? I want to be able to feel that way at any time, even if I'm still working hard, even if I'm still pursuing. And I think that was a really hard balance for me to find, right? It was a really hard balance for me to be like, well, how do I have goals and how do I move forward with my goals and how do I care about things if I'm also at the same time feeling good right now? Because if I feel good right now, then why, where's my motivation coming from? Like, why am I going to do hard things? Why am I going to do this bad thing? Like I need to like, I was always so driven by lack, right? I was driven by fear, driven by lack. And I didn't believe that like feeling good and love could motivate the same way. But how do you, so how I, do you reconcile that two piece you just spoke of? Yes. Okay. Um, it took me a really long time and I'm about how to explain the formula perfectly and what the perfect formula is. It might be a lifelong project. Um, so that's my disclaimer. <laughs> there was a lot of trial and error. The thing that stuck out to me once was I was listening to the Tim Ferriss show and I can't remember who the guest was, but someone on there who was saying, um, and I love the Tim Ferriss show and highly recommend it. It's been like a great asset in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I heard someone say, I think it was like a therapist or someone who is really like made their living through helping people heal their traumas. And he brought up this exact question. He said, so many people ask me, well, if I feel good now, then how in the world am I supposed to motivate? How am I supposed to get things done? How am I supposed to get up? And he said, his response really stuck with me, which was when you're in love with someone, you will go to the ends of the earth to please them, right? You will, you know, that think of that honeymoon phase when you first are just obsessed with someone like you can't sleep. You're just, you're up, you're working on anything that would make them happy. They say they want a milkshake from across town. Like you're driving across town. Like they say they like your hair a certain way every morning you're getting up, you're doing your hair that way, right? Like, with with excitement. Even if it's something that it's a task that you're kind of like, oh, I would never have done my hair this way before. But now you're like, all right, I'll spend an hour doing my hair because this sounds nice, right? Like you will do these things that are in love because from a place of love and peace, you just want to please. You want to shower love and creativity and goodness and, and create. And a lot of the time we are motivated from a place of fear. We're motivated from this place of like, if I don't make this money, I am not enough. If I don't have a job title that I feel good about, then how will people know that I'm successful? And that, then they probably won't. And then I won't feel successful. And then other people won't like me. And then that'll be bad. Um, or if I don't, you know, have a body that looks a certain way, if I'm not fit in this way, then people will see that and they'll think that I'm lazy. And then if they think that I'm lazy, they won't like me. They won't view me this way. And then that'll feel really bad. And we're just kind of constantly being driven by these underlying gashes, right? These underlying fears. And so a big thing that I had to do over the years was learn how to heal those gashes, right? And I would say, you know, as I mentioned, I'm incredibly like lucky. I've had an amazing family, amazing upbringing, and still I have years worth of gash work to do, right? Let alone people who have faced like deep traumatic issues. So all to say, like we all have gashes, you know, there's no, none of us that escape it. And healing them just means living from a place of 
true peace, true centeredness, true love, and being able to create from that place without feeling like you are in pain. So the answer to your question is almost a little counterintuitive, which is like, you don't actually need to make that conscious shift. The only conscious shift you need to make is, do you want to heal your gashes? And if the answer is yes, then eventually you will hit a point where you are not motivated from fear and, and hate, and you don't need to consciously think about balancing it because you will just be operating from a place of peace and you will be creating when you want to create and you will set goals that feel exciting and you will feel good about it all and things might fade away. And it's true. You might trade some ambition. You might trade a little bit of ambition that says, I want to get no sleep and destroy my body so that I can do this. And that might be gone. You might decide, you know what? No, I really do love my body. I want to live a long time. I want it to feel good. So I do want to get a little extra sleep. And because of that extra sleep, I am going to make three hours less of progress today. And that might be true. And so you might lose a little bit of that, which is why I think a lot of people haven't decided that they want to heal those things yet. And I think that's okay. But, um, but there's different tools I've used to heal them. And we can talk about those. Um, but I, I have found that that journey is pretty individual for people. Yeah, I think that's a that's a big question that, you know, perhaps if I were to find an easy answer, I would come back to you on that as well. Um, <laughs> how, how do you define ego? Um, and yeah, let's just start there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that I have a specific um, definition or a, a useful anything useful to add to that conversation. I think that the way that I think about it is to think about a moment where, at least for me, I, I think about when did I just know, like, when did I really know that something was the right thing in my life? Like I could just like, I don't know, pick anything, pick anything in your life where you're just like, you knew without a shadow of a doubt that that was the right thing. You were just, it was good. It was right. It, it is good. It is right. Whatever it is. And not because you have some strongly held conviction around it, but just like you felt it, you felt like everything you just, this is the right thing. Like I'm going to help this person or this is the right thing. Like I, I feel this way. Like I, I care about this person. Like I care about this thing. Like it's the right thing. And I think to me, ego is about all of our different parts that make up Brian, that make up Nina, right? Like every different part of us has its own sense of wanting to protect us and its own sense of wanting to like get certain things and have certain things. And when we can really find peace amongst all those parts or when we can quiet them so that we can really just know then there's a lot of things that open up for us. And I think that ego is the layers that get get stuck in between us and just sort of knowing, right? Like those, I think of them almost like curtains, right? It's like, I know that... That part is you don't know when it is your own true self and when it's ego. And I think it's more like an art than a science, but, you know, if you... Yeah. Does that decision come from a place of ego or a place of, you know, true self? I actually think... Yeah. I actually think it's a skill because I think I felt the same way for a long time. When I first started on my personal development journey, I, I discovered something called, well, I say first started. I mean, I've, obviously we've all been developing since we were young, but when I first started putting a lot of conscious time and energy into learning different methodologies, um, I learned about internal family systems. And it's basically based around this idea that we have lots of different parts that are created at different junctures in our life. And they all have different desires for us, but they're all really good intentionally, even if they're bad. So for example, someone that, you know, reaches for a drink, that's a part that's asking for a drink. And it's using that as a mechanism that's in service of the person, even if it's not anymore the highest service thing they can do. Um, it's, it's trying to protect its person. Right. And 
So I think that what happens is in that system, they talk about this self, which is a, um, it's kind of what they talk about when they say, you know, you meditate and you really feel at peace. It's what we talk about when we're talking about this knowing, this sense of knowing. And it's this kind of peaceful, loving, being, present entity that is us. And it, and it, when I first started using this methodology, I thought to myself, I don't know what self is. And I said to my therapist, I, I don't, I kind of get it, but like, I'm sort of in my parts, exactly kind of what you're saying, right? Like, how do you really tell if it's a part versus that? And she just kept saying, you know, it's got to strengthen yourself. The more that you strengthen it, the more that you listen, the more that you will learn. And now I can very clearly tell you who is and who isn't right. Like when am I in self? When am I not? But it took, it took time. It took time of listening and practicing and understanding. So I think it's more of a skill of just learning to hear and notice your other parts, notice what is a part and what isn't, and how do you tell the difference and how do you feel the difference? And eventually it becomes very intuitive to the point where it's not even a conscious process anymore. I think the keyword even it's not, it's, it's feeling, it's not actually the self because it's, it's kind of like, do you want to feel like you're motivated by fear? Or do you want to feel like you're motivated by stillness or calm or peace? Right. And, and yeah. make decisions through that, how you want to feel. And sure, if you want to be motivated by fear, go, go right ahead. Right. No one's stopping you there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, that's a good point because there are some ways that you can ask yourself if you're not sure that you're in self, there are qualities of self that across millions of people practicing these different methodologies, these different methodologies have honed in on self is non-judgmental, self is present, self is loving, like self is not dependent on what other people do or say, it just is, right? Like it's very present. Um, it's just a way of being. Self is is not optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's just, it is, it just is. And there's this kind of sense, um, there. So you can also use that to help you as your first learning. But I do think that it takes some time. It takes a lot of time to really navigate all these different parts and really understand. I love parts work personally because it just makes sense to me. It's like, we have all these kids running around amok making chaos and how basically if, if you're someone who it ever resonates with you to say, wow, this part of me came out in that conversation and I really didn't like it. Or like, it's interesting. Like I normally don't like this thing, but I found myself like talking about it as if I liked it. Right. Or I responded to my friend or my partner or my parent in such a mean way. And I don't know where that came from. Right. Those are parts. Those are parts protecting us. And to me, that really resonates when you're sort of trying to figure out where am I, or you feel like there's a gap between who you know you really are at your core and how you end up showing up in the world, that's where parts work can be really helpful. So you spend like $50,000 a year at some point on self-development. I like to think that I like to learn, but like your spending just like makes me look like a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, why is it worth it to spend that amount um, to you and how you're spending it? Let's see. Um, I would say that a, a couple things have probably informed why we spend so much money on personal development. Um, one is growing up, my dad always used to say, if it's a problem that money can solve, it's not really a real problem. And his point being like, if, you know, it's something where you can actually change your circumstances as a result of making more money, then it's not really something that is 
that big of a problem because there is money out there and like you can go figure it out. Like, right. Like you can be resourceful and you can make it happen. But if someone gets diagnosed with a sickness, if someone loses a family member, if someone didn't get a chance to say goodbye to someone they cared about, if someone didn't get a chance to express all the love in their heart, right? Like that's something that money can't solve. And that's a real problem because those are the types of problems that you take with you to your deathbed, right? And you feel regret around. And so I think I kind of grew up viewing money as, as a college friend once said, like fun points. It's just like money is how do you want to spend your fun point? How do you want to buy things? Right. And I, and I totally understand that I have a perspective that is informed by luck, but I've seen my parents make a lot of money and lose a lot of money and give away a lot of money. And, you know, so, you know, my childhood has been filled with lots of experiences of money being in various positions throughout my childhood with my dad as an entrepreneur. So it's by no means been taken for granted. My mom came from extreme poverty um, and, you know, we were raised with all these values. So to me, money is very much like uh, it's fun points, right? It's, it comes, it goes. And when you have it, what are you going to do with it? That's interesting and, and great. And so I think that's the kind of basic perspective. And then when I first started coaching, I read a book called the prosperous coach, which helped me sort of build my coaching business. And the book said, if you are a coach who does not invest an uncomfortable amount of money in your own coach, you have no business. <laughs> and I thought that that was so brilliant because his point was, how in the world are you going to get on a sales call and say to someone, yep, give me a lot of money to coach you because coaching has value and coaching makes your life better and it'll make your business explode and all these things. If you don't, the coach will do the same thing for you. And so from that, I decided, all right, great. I am not yet making money as a coach, but I have some savings. So I'm going to take some of my savings and start investing it in a coach. And it was very scary, right? Um, because I was like, you know, this is super uncomfortable. These are my savings. I'm not yet making money. But again, my belief was coaches help you create more. They don't take away they should be returning more on whatever you're investing in them. And of course, when you start doing it and then it starts to become true, you're like, wow, well, now I got to invest even more because the, it really is. It's like I input an investment into a coach of time and money, and then they output even more investment into my life of peace and money and happiness. And so the fun point transaction just makes total sense once you get into it and you get hooked. Now, why didn't I choose to do like, you know, the hundred dollar courses or things like that, that are available that maybe were a little more, um, that were a little cheaper. Um, ultimately, yeah, ultimately I think that cost effective is kind of the question for me, right? Like is something really cost effective? And if the answer is yes, I would do it. So cost effective is if I invest this in is the ROI I'm going to get out that much still really great, right? Is it a five, 10 X ROI? So there were some things where it was like, yeah, it totally makes sense for me to do this you know, $50 copywriting course, because I'm probably going to make more money from being a good copywriter on my website from that. Does it make sense for me to hire a copywriter at, you know, 50x that price? Is it going to actually give me 50x the return? Probably not, right? I'm actually a pretty good writer. And if I take a copywriting course, that's it. So I can save all that money and get that. So that's kind of how I think about investments into things. And when it comes to personal development, <clears throat> what I just found was having one-on-one -on -one support, having someone to sit there and push me and challenge me 
just was taking me so much deeper than the courses were or would because I had already done, I am such a self-starter. So I'd already read all the books. I had already done all the exercises. I had already done all these things. And I'm still sitting there going, and now what? And now I'm just inundated with information. Where do I go from here? So the one-on-one, so exactly. So to me, the one-on-one was more cost-effective because it was about moving me out of what I had been doing into a new level of development. And then over time, again, it compounds. You find new methodologies and you're like, well, I can't live without that now. <laughs> I want that every day, right? So, and then you kind of keep going and, and it evolves, right? And, you know, it ebbs and flows through at different stages of life. But once you realize the power of healing gashes, basically what I do now with my coaches is I have this running list just in Apple Notes and it's just a running list of um, gashes I notice. So, for example, one that I worked on this morning is I noticed that when I think about the future, I have a part of me that comes up that says, don't think about this because, you know, what if the world is really different than you think about? And then that'll be really hard. So I just wrote that down. And then today in my coaching session, I did a session on it. Right. So some of the time now it's about thinking about the future or, you know, I might run into a friend who's having trouble in their marriage and it's something that's completely non-existent in my world, but it might bring up a fear for me of, well, what if that happened in my marriage? That would be scary. And then I can bring that to session and say, part of me is scared of this thing happening. Right. Um, or, you know, or I have a scary, I use for work calls, right? Like I have a scary work call coming up. I'm really nervous about this proposal. I'm really nervous about this thing or I'm not showing up my best there. And then I can just bring that up to the coach. So really I view coaching now much more as gash healing and having outside accountability to point out other gashes that I'm not yet noticing. Um, than anything. And I just don't know of another way to do that unless I were to do it on my own, in which case I just wouldn't end up doing it. And so it's better. It's worth the investment to pay for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Got it. Um, wow. We're running on time. How do you meet Matt, uh, Machuri, which is why we got in the call in the first place. Yeah. What's his superpower over there? Oh my gosh. He has so many superpowers. Um, so I met Matt through my husband. He and my husband started a fund together on campus for Stanford students that that were coming out of Stanford. And so we became, Matt and I became friendly in college. Um, I got to know his family and him and, and he's just been a fantastic friend really and mentor. And when I first started to get into coaching, I did a lot of coaching, a lot of free coaching, a lot of very discounted coaching, a lot of learning. And, um, I could write a whole nother novel on how to start a coaching business. And at that point, Matt was starting to gain a lot of success in his coaching. Um, and, and when I started to get good enough, he started to kind of let me coach him a little bit just to kind of get a feel for me as a coach. And then when he felt like he trusted me, then he started to refer people to me. And then it just sort of kind of created this beautiful partnership. Um, And I would say Matt's superpower is making everyone he interacts with feel better for interacting with him. So, you know, even as something as simple as, you know, I talked to him on the phone on Monday, I get off the phone. I want to go tell my husband that I just got off the phone with Matt and how I'm just glowing. I feel good, right? You just feel good when you're around him. And if you're a business person, it works the other way as well, where you just feel like you're better because you're around him. He sat you down and he asked you questions that nobody else has asked you. 
that nobody else was direct with, right? Um, and so in answering them, you feel like you're a better person for having had him ask those questions. You feel like you're a better leader for having had him bring up these topics, feel like his tools have made you a better human and a better leader. So I think that's his superpower is he really makes people feel like they are better off every single interaction with him. Um, and I would say he's someone that really does strive to live his best life. Like he's prioritized that for a long time. And I think because of, you can feel it when you're around him, you're just like, wow, this is someone I want, whatever he's having. Right. Like I'll take that too. And it feels good, you know, <laughs> super cool. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you, you share a little bit about your evolution of your, you know, you coaching. And I, I don't know if you have time to talk about your coaching practice, which is kind of like the point of it all. Because um, <laughs> you start about a lot of practice round, you know, you start, should we do that in another session? You know, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. We can do. Well, I can go a few minutes over as well. So we can, we can try. I'll, take, I'll try to do a high level of your, your last couple of questions. Sure, sure. Okay. So, um, Maybe let's start with, you know, you talk about men and you talk about practice round and then um, then you talk about now, you know, you, you know, being such a, uh, a prolific coach, right? And, you know, Matt uh, recommending you. Um, what was that journey look like, you know? Um, and, and if someone were to do 80-20 of that journey, how does it look like too, right? Yeah. So I'll give you the granular, um, the, the high level, high level granular, which is a little contradictory. Uh, uh, so, okay. So what I did when I first, I'll skip how I decided I wanted to be a coach, but that was kind of part of the process. But let's assume that you're someone that has decided that you want to go into coaching or consulting of some kind. Um, I think that this definitely applies. What I did was took all my learnings from Namba, which a lot of very smart people had been telling me from the start. And I actually implemented them this time. And the real core of it was do the hard things first. Do the hard things. Just do the hard things. Skip the fun things. Skip the easy things. Do the hard things. And just do them with joy and excitement and just do them. And it'll be done. And so what I basically did was like, well, what is the hard thing? The hard thing is not, can I build a pretty website? The hard thing is not, can I learn how to coach someone? And will I read the books? And I will I do the courses? And will they all be successful? I knew that I could do those things. I knew that I love to learn. I knew that I love to build beautiful brands. I knew that I love all those things. So I did the opposite. What was the hardest thing for me? The hardest thing for me was learning how to get clients, learning how to do sales, learning how to figure out how to present my value, learning how to understand what people's problems were. <clears throat> so the first about six months of the journey probably looked like me doing about, I would wake up and I would do about an hour a day. So this was with me for full time being like, I've already made the jump. I'm living off my savings. I'm going full time into this realm. It was me getting up and doing whatever I needed to do to get grounded. So I was like focusing a lot on myself, like my own practices. I'd spend probably an hour in the morning meditating, praying, moving, whatever I needed to do. And I was playing with that. And then, and it was, it was a lot of like figuring out like why I was motivated to do this. Like I want to be of service to others. I want to, like, it would be a gift to be able to make my career off of being of service to others. Right. That was very much the place it was coming from. And every morning I was like honing that back in, like just put me wherever you need me. Like I want to go be of service to others. And then it would be about three hours of cold emails. It sucked. 
it, it really sucked. I would be on hunter.io and I would just sit there and I would take the list. I had decided that I first wanted to start with people that were, I, I heard the, the idea that you never need to know everything to be a coach. You just need to find the people that are two steps behind you. And so for me, the people that were two steps behind me were young first time founders. So people under very literally, they were people like under 21 who were first time founders. So first I went through the Teal Fellowship. Then I went through the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Then I went through my friends and family that I had, that I knew and asked anyone that fit this description. They were under 21. They were a first time founder of a startup backed company. And then I went through Facebook and then I went through all, you know, the ink list and all these things. And I was literally just Googling and I created a massive spreadsheet and I went through hunter.io and I would send things and then I would spend some time on each person's website, each person's LinkedIn, understanding more about them, crafting a really personal email. Um, and it was just basically like, that was, it was a successful day if I spent three hours doing these cold outreaches. And, and then I would do that in the morning and then I would break. And sometimes I would have a session scheduled from this. And basically what I was offering in those cold emails was a free first session. You would get one free session. You're going to walk away with resolve. I'm not going to try to upsell you. I'm not going to try to get you on contract. Let me offer you a free session to work on your biggest problem. No obligation to continue on. That was my pitch. And I then would spend the afternoons learning and working on myself. So the gash work that we were talking about, I would read a book and I would apply it to myself. I would read a book and I would apply it to my Namba experiences. So I would say, all right, well, what if this tool had existed? Um, what if I had learned that or how could I apply this? And I was my guinea pig and I was rigorous about it. Right. Um, and then over time I started to get more and more of these free sessions scheduled. And then after each free session, I would sit down and I would say, what, and I would ask for feedback at the end, right? I would ask for a like and a wish, like what was really helpful and what wasn't. And I would ask, you know, do you want to continue on or do you want to refer me to anyone? And most of the time the answer was no, right? And so I, I would try to understand like where had I not added enough value? And then I started to realize eventually like, okay, these things are good. These things are not good. These things I'm really good at and these things I'm really bad at. And then I basically took the things that I wasn't adding a lot of value in or the areas where I wasn't great at and I figured out how I could get good at them. And then I took the areas where I was adding a lot of value and said, how can I become the world's best at this thing? And, um, and then it helped me. And then eventually after six months of this, the cold reaches and the free calls, I kind of understood this is where I add the most value. This is my value proposition. And then it was so easy to build my website. Up until this point, I had no website. I have no email address, like besides my just normal Gmail. I have invested zero dollars in marketing, nothing, right? And I don't have a business, anything. And then at this point, I can now say, here's what I do. Here's the value I offer. Here's the programming I offer. And then I presented that to people and they were like, cool, great. And I started to sign people on at rates and then I looked at my rates and then my husband said, you're going to double your rates. And then I said, no way, I'm not going to double my rates. That makes me want to throw up. And he's like, you're going to double your rates. And then I doubled my rates. And then with every client, I tried to raise my rates based on the value they said I was adding. So for the next client, so if this client said yes to this proposal in my head, I said, okay, they said yes. So even though I think that's high, they're saying that this value is still valuable. I did ROI check-ins with them. And if the answer was they're clearly getting that value and they think that that's worth it, then I would raise the rates for the next client, which helped me build my business really, really quickly to a price point that a lot of people wait a really long time to hit because 
I was doing it much more outcome based. And it was also holding me super accountable because it was like, we're not just getting on the phone for an hour. Like we are working towards this outcome that is critical for your business. It's worth a million dollars for your business. And I'm obviously going to be compensated when we hit it. But like you, like, this is what we're here to do. We're not just here to like, you know, just talk on the phone for an hour. So that kept me really focused and really growing. And then eventually everything, you know, word of mouth referrals, people, you know, asking around became helpful. Um, and then obviously Matt was super kind to refer people to me as well. So that helped a ton. And then, um, but all of that also prepared me to be on a call with Matt where he was having a problem and I was able to just coach him through the problem and then him to be like, wow, this was great. Like you're a great coach. Now I want to refer people to you. Right. So a lot of it was all, it was all training, even though I didn't always know I was training for something big. Right. Um, same thing with certain investors who now refer people to us. Um, and that ultimately led to my current business, which is from that overflow of clients. Um, I started to try to find other people like Matt had done to me where I could really help them unlock their businesses by referring people to them. Um, and what I found was it's really, really hard to tell who's a great coach and who's not. And that's really challenging. And so that's why I had, I had heard throughout my time coaching, I had heard rumblings of, thank God I found you because I interviewed all these coaches or I tried it and had this terrible experience working with a coach. And it was really hard. And I'd heard these things, but it had never really clicked for me until I realized, wow, like I had tried to look for a coach at Namba and hadn't been successful. And that would have really helped with the challenges that I talked to you about here. And then all these clients are having these issues. And now I'm trying to find coaches for my incoming referrals. And it's so hard to find. So this is a real challenge. And so my husband, again, in his awesomeness said, well, why don't you turn this into a business? Why don't you start a matchmaking business for this? That brings together so many things you love. And I was kind of like, no, like, I like the idea, but like, no, I'm a coach now. I don't do that. I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't want to start a business. Right. And then slowly I started to realize I could do it in ways that were actually really exciting. And that like brought the things I loved about Namba and let the things that I didn't love behind. And so then that started that business, um, which is now thriving, wonderful business, um, called, uh, executive coach matchmaking, which is the majority of my team's time now. How do you vet, um, coach when you are onboarding then? Or I guess that's two questions, but how do you vet? Let's just start there first. Yeah. So I have ways that I recommend people do it if they're not using our matchmaking service. Um, and basically that's, that's, you build a scorecard and you treat it as if you're recruiting a team member, um, and you do reference checks and you put them through interview processes and do essentially like sample sessions. Uh, even if you have to pay them for that, the way that we do it in our network is, for someone to be considered a pre-vetted coach, which coaches apply to be pre-vetted coaches because it's just faster. They're already a pre-vetted coach. Then it's much quicker for us to know, but we will go out and find you the perfect coach. So for example, if you wanted an executive coach with us, we would, the, the process looks like we do a clarity call with you. And that clarity call is 30 minutes where we would ask you every question we've figured out is important to know about your goals, your needs, your strategy, your budget, your team, your culture, your desires, everything like that to build this profile of who you are and what you need in a coach. It's anonymous, but it's essentially us building your scorecard so that we can figure out who the best fit is. I have that question in um, your website, so I'll link that. 
have a bunch of questions like that. And then, you know, obviously our matchmaker is also there live to dive in with you of like, okay, well, you know, if you have multiple co-founders and you all want to work with this, like we can go through the pros and cons of working with the same coach versus different, right? So they're also, we're consulting you at the same time on like what we've seen work, what we haven't based on your questions um, and your goals. And we'll also tell you at the end of it, you know, sometimes we get to the end of that call and we say, you know what, we actually don't think a coach makes sense for you at this stage, but here's how it might make sense in the future. Or we actually think a life coach is going to be more cost effective for you. So here we can refer you out to this life coach agency or matching agency, right? Um, or I think at this point, really, you should just read Matt's book, for example, and then come back to six months, right? Uh, so it's great. So there's lots of different ways we do it. But typically, when we are at, end up matching someone, we then take that profile and we say, all right, who is going to be the best fit? And first we look at our pre-vetted network. And if we think that there are perfect sets of fits, so a perfect coach fit, who we know can get these outcomes, great. And if not, then we go out and we do a search just through our networks the same way that the executive would. And typically what the search entails and what the pre-vetted coaches entail is we reach out to this person and we ask for references first and foremost. And we have literally, we have a team member who all they do is reference checks. So that is the level of seriousness, which, which we take it because to us, previous outcomes are the only thing that we know that can justify whether a coach is worth a certain investment for certain outcomes, right? So if you want to build a great team culture and that is worth $10,000 a month for you, we only know if a coach is capable of building that if they have a track record of building that. And sure, they can be capable if they don't have that track record, but we need to understand why that is, why they're likely to be capable. They probably shouldn't warranting that price point for it, et cetera. So we're taking all that into account from the references. The coaches then fill out a really extensive application that answers all these questions that, you know, I can spot BS on as someone that's been a coach and an entrepreneur, which is like, what does a session look like? How do you do follow-ups? Um, how do you measure success? What do your contracts typically look like? Your engagements, you know, how do you invest in yourself? Who is your coach, right? And that's a big one. You know, if a coach doesn't have their own coach, right? Like, and we, we figure out all these things. Um, what are your biggest fears? What are the hardest things in your business? What are your best things? What are the things that people tell you are your biggest strengths? You know, how many clients are you looking to add to your portfolio? Like we really understand everything about them and their business to make sure that we're separating out the signal from the noise. Right. And then, and we actually choose a coach for our pre-vetted network. They go through a vision call setting process so that they spend about 45 minutes with our matchmaker. And that person just shares, the coach shares their vision for their business. They share their fears, their excitements, all of this. And we use that to internally build a personalized website page with videos and things like this, as well as kind of an internal profile that we use within our matchmaking system to kind of recall things about coaches, like the outcomes they've gotten. And then from there, when we have a new profile coming in, so for example, if you're looking for a coach, we say, great, let's apply certain filters. All right, your your budget is this budget and you want a coach that has done these outcomes and blah, blah, blah. And it pulls up a profile for us, a set of profiles. And then our matchmaker knows all of them individually and has now just met with you. So she can say, I think that these two would be a great fit. And then what we'll do is we'll connect you um, to the websites that we've made that we feel separate the chaos, right? That, that really gets you the info you need to know for the one to three coaches that we think are a great match. If we don't think someone's, there's any great matches and we've done an exhaustive search, we will tell you, we would much rather not match you with someone than have you match with a poor match. But that's never happened actually, to be honest with you. Um, and 
So what you would then receive is an email being like, here are the three coaches. Here's the sort of pros and cons based on your needs. And here's their websites. Tell us who you want intros to. And then you would say, great, I want intros to you know, all three of them, or I want intros to one and two. And then we would do email intros. And then from there, they are running their own relationship, however they normally do. But at that point, you know, embedded, you know, they've been reference checked, you know, so much more about them, you've cut out the initial things. And usually you can spend those first intro calls, really just getting into coaching and seeing how it feels working with them. So that's our process. It's meant to be super quick for the executive, super streamlined, and meant to really help coaches that are really good transcend, right, and and be seen for how they are. Uh, and I want to go into this uh, question because most people wouldn't know what to do for coaching. And I think it's a new thing, especially over here in Asia. But what are some of the most common reasons, you know, why does a, a CEO or someone want to come for you for coaching? Absolutely. So a lot of people actually come to coaching just because they've heard that coaching is good and they don't really know what it is and they don't really know how, like what it should cost and what they should look for. But they just kind of their investors are saying coaches are good. They hear through podcast like this, that coaching is positive. So I would say even if you just have the slightest curiosity, reach out, we can also offer like a console call. Um, and we have a bunch of information on our website around like, when's the right time to get a coach? What does coaching actually mean? So you can dive into that more in depth there. But typically, what a coach does is helps you keep the road clear. So if you're starting a business, um, Obviously, also, if you're just living a life, hence the whole sector of life coaching, but especially if you're starting a business, there are going to be a lot of obstacles that you are not the first person to face, right? You are not going to be the first person to face feeling isolated from your friends and peers and team. You're not the first person that's going to face fundraising phobia. You're not the first person that's going to face challenges trying to set up management structures in your company when you've gone from like a hustle startup to now you're scaling into a big organization. You're not going to be the first person to face um, to face dealing with co-founder challenges, right? Like there's so many things out there. And what a coach does is they help you not only deal with what's coming up right now as your best self, but they also help you say, actually also just so you know, coming around the corner is this thing that's gonna be a big issue. Um, and they also help look at yourself as a leader and say, you know, how are you managing your time? How are you managing your energy? Are you showing up as the most effective version of you? So one way to think about it is if you're the CEO of a startup, yeah, I know it's a lot. And one way to think about it is if you're the CEO of a startup and let's say you're making $75,000 a year and the company is growing super quickly and you have a bunch of investors, you're assuming that the $75,000 investment is, and this equity invested in that you own of the company means that you are adding a lot of value to the company, right? And so if you try to break that down from a compensation standpoint, you can ask, if I took 5K from the company and invested that in making me 25% more effective because this coach is going to come in and help me figure out how to prioritize my time, how to step back and do more strategy, how to do more risk assessment, how to really become the high-level leader and thinker and strategist the company needs now, that 50% or 25% more effectiveness that you've just brought to the company from a monetary perspective alone is worth way more than the 5k just by looking at how much the company is investing in your salary, right? The equation doesn't work out exactly that way, but you can start to see how these numbers are actually not as big as they might seem when you're talking about a 
five to 10 K a month coaching budget, given how many people they impact, right? If you have one month of you did a bad job setting up goals for the company and a whole team is working on the wrong goals, that's worth a lot more financially than what you might invest in to have a coach who is fantastic at helping you set up proper goals, right? I think the way how I think about it is that you're, if you're steering a $1 billion ship, like, you know, 5% wrong of the time, then, you know, that costs that much money versus you're steering a $100,000 ship, right? Which is the business ship business. Right. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. So I, I would say those are big reasons to get a coach. The other big reason to get a coach is the mental health. A lot of people talk about burnout in startups. And I would say that burnout is not inevitable in any way, shape or form. Um, it is something that happens when you don't have the proper support. And getting a coach can really prevent burnout and it can prevent co-founder issues. And both of those things are things that lead to huge risk for startups, right? Co-founder relationships are still, I think, the number one reason that startups fail, right? Or that business, businesses fail. So you can have someone come in and help you with those things. And there's lots of different forms of coaching, but I would really say anyone that is thinking they want to be their best, they want to learn to be their best, or they want to reduce as much risk as they can for their company, which why wouldn't you, then coaching is right for you. Uh, on a person who wants to be a coach, because like you, you know, two years ago from yeah. Um, you know, you talk about this learning process of doing the hard things first, but if you do give yourself 80, 20 of the, um, of what tools to help you the best to get to where you are or books or, or you know, so we can have two perspectives to go about it. Okay. One is the times perspective. One is the financial perspective. So one is if you have unlimited financial resources, what will you do? One is, one is if you have very little money, but you have unlimited time, what will you do? Right? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so the question is just to make sure I understand the question is if someone wants to become a coach scenario, one is they have unlimited time, but very little money. What's their path forward? And the other scenario is they have limited time, but they've got yeah, unlimited that's money. Right, that's right. That's right. Great. So let's say like the unlimited time is you've quit your job and you have a set number of savings and it's not that much and you need to be making money again, but you have all day long because you've quit your job and you're totally free time, right? Um, so if you're in this scenario, um, maybe don't quit your job first. Uh, if you don't have unlimited savings, like try to plan, right? But if you can't help it and you don't have runway, I would say give yourself a year's worth of savings runway. That's what I had. And that felt very comfortable. Um, if you can't be in a position where you can do that because you've been laid off or because you just can't stand it one day longer and you just have to leave, like, okay, that's fine. Um, then what I would recommend doing with your unlimited time is basically what I outlined I did, but I would up, 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 up the outreach. So instead of doing three hours a day, like I did, I would be spending three hours a day was like all I could do without feeling like nauseated. But if you but like, realistically, I could have done a lot more, right? So I would do as much as humanly possible um, early on so that you could get those calls scheduled and moving. Um, and I would read the prosperous coach, the book, the prosperous coach, that also lots of playbooks in it. And I think that if you follow it, you can be successful. Um, I think if you're finding that you are not a self-starter and you're having a lot of trouble holding yourself accountable, there are some courses where you can pay some amount of money that is a lot, you know, if you're living off your savings, like let's say five to $10,000 where you can pay and they'll sort of coach you through getting your first clients. They'll coach you through setting up your value. Prop, if any to recommend 
Yeah. So one, which in full disclosure, my brother works at, um, that I really like called shit you don't learn in college or high impact coaching. And they specifically work with wellness coaches. So you have to be in the health or wellness domain, but they do a really great course and people have fantastic success rates of like, they sign on, they learn how to do sales pitches. They learn how to build value props. They learn how to hone in on their mindsets. And then they, they like leave the course having paying clients basically. Um, so I think something like that is good, but I think you have to be very, 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 very careful because there's a lot of charlatans and there's a lot, even well-intentioned charlatans, right? Um, so just, just being super, super careful. I think if you can do it on your own, that's way better because it saves you time and money. Um, but if you possible, want, coach, and then if you have a little bit of money, then the shit you don't learn. I mean, high impact. I would say yeah, prosperous coach, and then if you can make like if you can manage like a hundred dollars a week, can you hire a great life coach for one hour a week? Right. Like, and if you can hire them for one hour a week, then just have a weekly check-in with them. Right. Even if it's something as, um, a great tool that exists now is called focusmate.com. Have you heard of Focusmate? Yeah. Yeah. Actually friend of friend of friend of friend do it. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Well, I love it. And I think it's a great way to do it too. So like one thing is set up daily focus mates and you just are gonna do knock out your cold emails during that time. Obviously, if you know people in the area you want to coach, that's a better starting point than just cold emails. Um, milk those relationships if you have them. But cold emails work, right? Don't spend time building your social media. Don't spend time building your website. Don't do that as a fun project. Like if you want to do that the same way you want to go for a walk later, you want to spend an hour instead building your social media, great. But don't, don't, um, don't pretend that you're doing work, right? Like that's not the work that's going to drive forward your key concern. And then on the flip side, if you're someone, let's say like you're working a great recommendation from where to find life coach or what are the few uh, life coach you're Yes. Good, good question. Um, life coaches, I mostly just recommend sort of as one-offs to people that ask, um, you know, I, I say like, Oh, I know this nice life coach here, this good life coach here. Um, I don't have, there's not like one source that helps connect people with life coaches that I feel great about, um, that I found. Uh, well, my brother, Josh church is fantastic coach. Um, and he does kind of arrange, uh, I know a few women, Emily Pick, Emily, P-I-K, Devin King, D-E-V-I-N-K-I-N-G. Um, the, one of the coaches I work with who's kind of in between an executive and a life coach, he does a lot of both, is called um, Giorgio Genu, G-E-N-A-U-S. He's fantastic. I love him. Um, and then there's a specific method, Mark Andreas is his name. And he, he uses a very specific tool. I also work with him weekly, M-A-R-K-A-N-D-R-E-A-S. So, um, those are all great people who offer some form of kind of typically hourly coaching. What should we talk about actually in this session? Do you have any topics in mind? Yeah. So Mark and I do a method called core transformation, which is a very specific tool. Um, it's, it's what I will bring things. Like when I say I write down on my list, it's like what I'll bring things to, I'll bring my gashes to. And it's a very specific method to really help you find peace in your gashes and heal them. Giorgio and I work on much higher level, I would say higher level patterns and behaviors. So, you know, I'll point out, you know, I really have to put a lot of effort into, um, you know, not worrying about what will happen 
to my family if I make a lot of money, right? Like, will it cause strife and energy? And, you know, and it's a bad thought. I don't thinking about that. And so we'll work on like that high level challenge and we'll tackle it from different angles. Um, and the thing about coaching too, is it's not, it's not always, it's not static, right? So for example, Georgie and I used to work together every week for two hours and that was a lot and that was really good. And it helped me process a ton of topics really quickly. And then we kind of hit a point where I thought, you know what, this is a lot. And I kind of just want to enjoy some of the, the, resilience and peace I've built. And so then we moved to every other week and then we moved to monthly. Right. And so you can have different cadences and different things. It's not like you have to be doing it. I sort of view it the same way as I, the gym work, right. You know, you can, you can go to the gym every day and you can still be very fit and very healthy. And if you're still very fit and very healthy, going to the gym three days a week, and you don't enjoy it then just go three days a week. But if you start to enjoy it more, you start to feel like you need it more go, go more. Right. So, um, that's how I think about coaching. Um, and then the, the second part of the question. So like, let's assume that you're someone who is working a great job and you kind of know that you want to be a coach, you know, you don't love your job, but you're making lots of good money and you're like, I'm excited to get out, but I'm willing to be patient. I'm willing to plan. You're a good planner. Um, as my dad says, you're learning on someone else's dime, right? So you're, you're, you're learning and you're growing and you're becoming the better version of you, but someone else is paying you to do it, which is great. That's always a win. Uh, but you're sort of sneaking moments here and there. Let's be realistic. You're tired when you come home from work. You don't really want to oh, do it after work. Day, right? yeah. Your weekends, you're kind of like, really, am I going to get up and cultivate this side project? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I will tell you the advice that almost no one I give it to listens to. So maybe I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> uh, um, but again, it's the same thing. Do the hard things. So what is the bottleneck? Is the reality that not enough people are going to follow you on social media and so not enough people are going to know that you exist as a coach and, and therefore it's bad? Or is the bottleneck that you're not going to be a good coach and so you need to make sure that you're learning and doing all the things that add value? What I can say is most people who become coaches – want to become a coach because they intuitively know that they can really help people. They intuitively know that already they're the person that their friends come to and already they're this. And yes, they're going to get way better. Like I am so much better at giving advice and supporting someone and helping them navigate problems now than I was when I first started. And I learned a ton. So it's not that I was there and I was done. Um, I'm still learning a ton. But that wasn't the problem because that type of learning is fun for me and it's easy for me and I can grow on it and I want to do it. Right. And so I'm naturally driven to it. So what I ask is, what are the things that you're not naturally driven to that stand in the way of you starting your And for most people, the answer is getting clients, getting people on the phone, pitching a price. Right. Like, so I would say the same thing. If you are working, you have unlimited finances and you have very limited time you should be blocking off, put a, put a focus made on your calendar for Sunday afternoon yeah. and spend that time just getting your first client and take on one client at a time and set those engagements up to be small engagements. First, it's just a free yeah. session or it's a paid session. Then it's That's a, so um, then it's a two to three sessions, Cause, right? Cause it's like it's the same thing, time. right? It's like, well, go save out that one year, then burn the bridge then put fire in the ass, then go do exactly. this. Then exactly. Exactly. Right. Because the second part I was going to say is, and start a savings account and figure <laughs> out how much money you need to make. And then when you hit that amount in your savings, quit your job, right? Yeah, so, bridge, yeah. so that's the, um, that's the second thing I would say. Um, but the other thing to think about too is a lot of people say they want to be coaches 
And I would just encourage people to know that you can, coaching is a skill set, just like someone that says, you know, I want to be a writer. You can be a writer and you can be a full-time writer who writes novels. You can be a writer and be a journalist. You can be a writer and work in advertising. You can be a writer and be a teacher. You can be a writer and be lots of different roles. So depending on your appetite for risk, your appetite for starting your own company, your appetite for making a steady income or being okay with not, your appetite for various things, coaching is the same. It's a skill set of helping people navigate going from wherever they are to who they really want to be and helping them become the best version of themselves. And it's a skill set that involves lots of lots of different talents and skills within it. But you can do that in any role you're in. And if you want to make yeah. that your full time yeah, yeah, yeah. profession in a specific focused area, great. But also think about can you be the world's greatest manager like in your current position, your current company, can you just shift it and really focus on coaching? Like that can be really satisfying for some people in a way that is actually much better for them specifically. So I no, wouldn't, you're so obviously, you're, I think the question to us is that you, maybe you, you don't need to make money from it, right? It is. Right, exactly. I know plenty of coaches that just do it because it's like they love to mentor and they want to be as effective as possible as a mentor. So they've learned how to coach. They've gotten coaching Well, that's kind of like Matt's story, isn't it? Because he don't exactly, charge a dime, yeah. which is like insane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, definitely. And 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 also, if you want to, and the other way to think about it is that if you want to change life, the rapper don't matter. Um, you could be a bubble, exactly. and there are many bubbles that go on changing many lives and impact many people. Right? Just go start talking to people. Yes, totally. And you know what? And it's also only when you start talking to people that you also see all your gashes around it, right? Like you can think in the future, oh, when I start talking to someone, I'm going to do this and that and this and that. But until you actually start talking to someone, until you actually pitch someone your pricing, until you actually talk about your ROI with someone and sit down and say, how did this go? You're not going to realize the gashes that you have. And that's true in every area of your life, right? Until something starts, it's very hard to know. And only then can you really like deal with it and you can really become resilient around it and, um, and anticipate it properly. So especially when it comes to starting your business, like rip off the bandaid, like go do the things that you're most worried about. And then you won't get anxiety. You won't live in fear. And you can just be like, Ooh, that's a cold, cold gush of wind coming through my face, but I can deal with it. It's here. I'm here. I can handle it. You know? All right. I just want to say a big thank you. And I definitely will need to um, look into your um, um, partner because he just been brought up so many times in the conversation. And he sounds a pretty amazing. Guy. <laughs> amazing. What was he doing right now? And, in, 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 you know, living Australia and coming to. Um... Yeah, he um, well, he is in recruiting and he um, he runs a. Um, a bunch of different projects basically he's kind of similar to me he's sort of like has has thrown away the labels and just sort of does a bunch of very interesting things so uh i'm i'm sure eventually if you ever come to california you'll let us know and you'll get to meet him and chat with him. A linkedin or a website kind of thing i would love to check he does his name is chris barber yeah um, i'll do that i'll find him on linkedin yeah yeah and he's a pretty um generally a pretty private person so oh. i would say he's not much bragging about himself and kind of doing PR and things like that. Um, but he is very fascinating and I look forward to you guys meeting at some point oh my for God. sure. Again, I just <laughs> want to say a big time. This interview is overrun and you've been so generous with your time. I'm so sorry. I have so much questions, but they are well, so Chris, fascinating. A lot of fun. Thank you for letting me share with you. It's been so fun to share and I hope that it's useful to you and anyone who hears it. All right, man. Well, Bye.
we'll get let you get on with your day and um yeah thanks so much oh, and have a great day it's your morning right i'm jealous you're just getting started <laughs> all right have a great day Ryan. what's up people it's over. Well, as usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on our website, brianvictor.com, Brian for Y. And if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free, drop me an email. And thank you again for your time to listen to this episode. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead.